A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through chapter 31 of Brandon Sanderson's The Lost Metal. Through chapter 31. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. My dogs are going insane right now. I mean, they're fine. They're, they'll be okay. But if you hear like long distant barking on your, <laughs> on your audio track, it's not you. There's not a dog in your home or outside of your home. It's me. It's my dogs and they are large and loud and they do not like the wiener dog next door or they do they've never like formally met but they meet through the uh, through the fence and through the shrubs and uh they're very vocal about wanting to to hook up i guess his name is otis i think mm-hmm. something like that i don't know I don't, I don't know if they'd be friends i hope so but they're my dogs are big and kind of sound scary when they bark, so I, I don't know how amicable that meeting would actually end up being. <laughs> totally, totally fair. I don't know where to spin it from there. Today is our third episode <laughs> discussing The Lost Metal by Brandon Sanderson, and we're going to be chatting about chapters 20 through 31, not about dogs named Otis. That was that was it. That was the whole thing about the Otis dog. We could talk about was... Otis. No, oh, we're not going to talk Cliff. about fucking Otis. Hi, buddy. He's looking at me through, <laughs> through the window. Funny. But before we go too far there, I want to I do two things. We'll talk about what we're drinking in just a moment, but... I also want to say that we just released our schedule for next year. This is important for a couple of different reasons. One of the reasons being that Short Pours is coming back in a big way this year with a much more predictable schedule to follow along with different kind of monthly read-alongs of books that like I want to talk about, that PJ wants to talk about, but that otherwise would be either difficult or maybe not as interesting to do in the sort of weekly breakdown format. With that, we also have the Year of Sanderson books that are inside of that list, including the one that we get on Saturday at midnight, and I just realized that we're going to have to read that one right away. So there's there's that going on as well. But the book of Sa- the Year of Sanderson as well, we'll be doing all of those books inside the months. We also announced that we are going to be doing The First Law after Red Rising 6. So after Lightbringer, we will jump into the original trilogy of the First Law, beginning with the Blade itself, and going through the last argument of Kings. A short rationale there is that we do want to finish Red Rising. We also want to take a little bit of a break from the bigger Sanderson, and I need to reread it realistically. There's a lot there mechanically, world-building-wise, and I don't want to rely as much on others' work as I did throughout this series. And I'm very passionate about it, and I'm excited to cover it, but I need a little bit of a break, I think, especially also some of our listeners have requested, let's do something else. It's been like a full year of the same author, and I can't, I can only do so much. And so I get it. Really, so we're, um, When we first were coming, coming upon the end of Dark Age... We put out a poll about what series to cover next. And it was a very, very close race between Mistborn, which we ultimately ended up doing, obviously, and the first law. So 
kind of following that, that that was the like it was a really really tight poll, wasn't it? It was my vote that broke it. So yes, it was a very <laughs> tight poll. I I decided that we were going to do Mistborn because okay. it was literally a vote apart. So yeah. I I put my thumb on the scale to make a decision, but mm-hmm. I didn't vote. Uh, I would have voted against you just out of principle that's fair not that i knew anything about either of these series yeah the green boat saga was on the list it only got four votes at the time and i am it's tragic tragic how dare they but yeah so absolutely that's a big part of the reason that we're going to cover it as well it's something that's requested it's something that people you know in our in our groups are reading and discords and everything else so we are going to do that another reason that we're going to do it is because red rising 7 supposedly provided everything is on track the way that it's expected to red god is also going to be coming out next year i again A, don't want to break up Stormlight with going back to Red Rising or something like that. And B, I also want Stormlight to be finished before I commit to something. This Lost Metal business was a little bit... I thought it was going to be okay, because obviously Red Rising doesn't have an end. We've got an end to the first trilogy. It hasn't concluded yet. But I don't think I did nearly as good of a job pulling on the threads as I would have liked and kind of unraveling the sweater. And I know now with the end in mind that I could have done a much better job of highlighting some of the things that I wish I would have. So my target going forward is with the main show to probably only try to tackle completed arcs or series. So I'm down for doing Stormlight once that fifth book comes out, as it will be a fully completed arc. And you can kind of see the themes and everything like that unravel more fully. It's not that I have a problem reading something that isn't completed. It's just talking about it for as long as we do is a more arduous task than you would imagine in organizing these thoughts and trying to spin them in a correct direction. It's very taxing for me to not know what's coming next. I Um, to know that there's a void in Crossland's understanding and not being able to try to read his thoughts. Like truly it's my burden and it's my problem. It, I mean, kind of. Uh, <laughs> it's like, I don't know if that's important. Do you think it's important? Or are we going to talk about it for 40 minutes for no reason and then cut 20 of it? There's there's a lot of that. But similarly with Red Rising, I'm ultimately in the same boat and I don't want to do this again where we have to hop in and out of series like this. So mm-hmm. another reason that the first law works so well is regardless of when it comes out in 2024, we will be able to stop and finish whatever book we're reading and then go into that red god and finish that up and then resume wherever we want we could take a first law break we could read something else we could do all kinds of things but because the first law has those standalone novels it gives us a ton of flexibility to kind of pick and choose when we end you know this would be so much easier if we both weren't such fucking completionists when it came to things like this (laughs) (laughs) i'm i i it's not even that i'm a completionist it's that i'm an experientialist Well, I am a completionist. That's definitely a thing. But like I I care the most about preserving an experience, right? And like giving the best. And that's like we talked about it many times. That's why I'm no hypist, right? Like that's why I'm, I'm, you know, that's why I don't watch trailers. That's why we do this the way that we do this is because like this is the most, I think, from my experience, this is the best way to do X, Y, Z. It's best to play Bioshock with the lights off and your phone off in the dark. You know, and, like and picking up every fucking collectible 
that you can find. Yeah. Because <laughs> the story beats inside of those collectibles are so good. Anyway, point being, core point of this whole thing, uh, we're going to be going into the first law after we do our Greenbone saga with the great folks over at HowlerPod, as well as Thomas from Haiki Obsessed, of which we're very excited to do a little 26-episode series. We'll be reading Lightbringer. I think that'll probably take about two and a half to three months to do, based on the estimated size, saying that's a little bit bigger than Dark Age. So that's about that time frame. And then after that, we will be starting the original trilogy, The First Law. We'll read as many standalones as we need to before picking up Red God and finishing Red Rising. And then we will be making a decision about what the next series is. Let's talk about what we're drinking. Let's oh, let's yeah. transition out of that that bit. But PJ, we are going to be reading our first Stephen King novel next year, regardless. Mm. Is it better than the, the short fucking story? random <laughs> short story that I pulled that was free online? Yeah, dude. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I I appreciated that short story, but it's fun to shit on it because it's Stephen it's King. Fair. Because you love him. Uh, yeah. You want to, I don't know, French kiss his toes or something. Um, I would love to kiss the what, ground he walks on. What I am drinking is now a an almost gone and mostly melted <laughs> frozen Mai Tai. Uh, so this is a recipe that Tim Pearson and I put together um, while we were in... Costa Rica because we didn't have standard simple syrup, but we did have Orgeau mm. and frozen drinks tend to push the sweetness a little bit farther. So we just mm. entirely replaced the vanilla simple syrup with a vanilla Orgeau that we made. So this is two ounces of rum. It is one ounce of lime juice, three quarters of an ounce of triple sec and just shy of a full ounce of orgeau and then a few drops of vanilla extract with a bunch of ice blended to shit and poured into the glass and served with a lime wedge. And it is so fucking good, man. It's so good. Wow. I love Mai Tais, but this is now like my, I think my favorite way to, to consume them. Because as hmm. it melts, like it, it's still a Mai Tai, it doesn't go bad. <laughs> yeah. And it's just refreshing and it makes me think of tropical things while it's, oh, it's actually okay. It's 10 degrees outside right now. So nice, nice. It's like 20 here. I mean, yeah. it's not, you know, it's like 20 degrees warmer than it was a couple days ago. <laughs> so yeah, which is great. <laughs> and there's no wind. Nice. Like it's, it's fucking balmy at this point here. But to follow that up, I have a beer from Modest Brewing Company, I think in conjunction with, no, not with Lua. That's a different beer. So Modest Brewing Company called Forbidden Canyons. It is a double dry hopped New England IPA with Mosaic, Citra, El Dorado Cryo, Equinot Cryo, and Sabro hops. The can is very nice. It looks like the Grand Canyon until you look closely and then it's just a dude sitting on lasagna. It's pretty great. The can is pretty great. The beer's all right. It doesn't shine out as like a like an amazing New England IPA, but there's nothing super wrong with it. I'd I'd like it to be a little bit less bitter, a little bit less sort of abrasive on the hop flavors that they use. But that's a nitpick, and just because like we're super in tune with the New England IPA scene in general, so right. I I have the authority to nitpick. Anyway, Crossland, what are you drinking? I 
am so I'm I'm in an interesting boat. I also went tiki, so that's awesome. We both went kind of in the tiki direction. I don't have any lemon or limes. I don't even have the artificial squeeze juice. I don't know how I don't have either of those bottles to like just make it by for something like this. I mean, it's not artificial, but you know, it's like. Yeah. I used super juice for this. You should make some of that next time you get some lime. I know, but I just don't have any limes or lemon. <laughs> like that's the issue. I haven't for I a while now because you know I was at my parents' house all weekend, so I didn't. I didn't get any groceries. Didn't that steal were any expire. limes from them? That was the error that I made. I didn't <laughs> steal the limes because they did buy the lemons and limes for me to make drinks, and I did make cocktails, but there were a couple left. At the end, I could have ran away with them. I didn't. So what I did is I was looking up. I had pineapple juice from the weekend of cocktails. I made orgeau, so I had orgeau. And so I was like, okay, tiki direction. I, I can pull something off. So I was just looking through a variety of different recipes and landed on the pineapple rum cocktail. Except for I did not follow the instructions at all. But <laughs> it, it pointed me in the right direction. <laughs> So it it got me where I wanted to go. So the pineapple rum cocktail for everyone at home is six mint leaves, a teaspoon of sugar, two lime wedges, two ounces of your rum of choice, generally a dark aged rum or an aged rum, one and a half ounces of pineapple juice, quarter ounce of maraschino liqueur, and then two shakes of orange bitters on top. So the idea here being, oh, not a whole lot in the way of the lemon lime flavor, like not a whole lot of citrus in this. So I was like, okay, cool. So I'm going to just pull out the citrus. I don't have the the mint, so I don't have the mint in there. So I don't put that in Up here. <laughs> that would have been. Yeah, perfect. right. Exactly. So I'm like, I'm, mi- I'm missing a couple of critical things. So what I ended up doing was as opposed to the tea- teaspoon of sugar, I went with uh, a half an ounce of orgeau. Two ounces of the rum, one and a half ounces of the pineapple juice, a quarter ounce of the maraschino liqueur, just a drop of orange blossom water and two shakes of Angostura bitters. And it is and then shaken. And it is awesome. It is it is very good. All it needs is the tiniest splash of lime or lemon and it would be a perfect drink. Right now, it is an excellent drink, but it does. It is just missing that little bit of acid, but that orange flower water did make it feel like it had it like artificially. My mouth feels like I'm drinking a full complex cocktail, but my taste buds aren't responding correct. They want that like sour bite. And so mm-hmm. it's it's so bizarre, but it's really good. It tastes really great. Awesome. Perfect, um, I made a man. double of it, though, because I don't have any beer in the fridge either. So I've got. Yeah, this is yeah. four ounces. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> From, <laughs> so I'm drinking it very slowly. You're like, I'm already done. And I'm like, I tried not to drink any of that during the yeah. devil's cut and just take the shot. Because otherwise I'm going to be wasted by the end of this. If you want to right. hear Crossland not drink, you can go to patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey and <laughs> get on our Patreon and listen to the devil's cut every, every episode. Another small thing about the Patreon This year, we are now going to be incorporating the short pours into the Patreon. They will be coming, with the exception of the Brandon Sanderson episodes, ahead of time to patrons. So outside of the four Book of Brandon episodes that are going to be coming out right away, the episodes for the rest of the season are going to be coming out early to patrons. Some of them much earlier, for instance, Castlevania, of which I believe we put the episode out in March or April. Season one is going to be up this week. On the Patreon, it won't come out for three months publicly. In the case of a lot of those, that'll be the case. Thief of Always, we're recording next week. That'll be for January. It comes out in February. Yeah. Yeah. So, cool. Should be great. All right. 
Sweet. Well, enough about that. Enough about us. Enough about what's going on, because that was a lot. But there, <laughs> there's a good chance what I'm going to do is I'm going to like take that and make it a small little mini-sode to explain new changes or something like that. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But before we talk about the chapters, PJ, how'd you feel about this week's reading? What'd you think? How'd you feel? This week's reading felt much more detective-like. Like, we, yes. we got a lot of really great clue payoffs which i wasn't really expecting but it was a happy change like this is the core to a lot of these characters but they're working well together and they are actually like satisfyingly finding and deducing information yeah totally i i think that that's one of the most satisfying parts of this week to be honest is we i think we've talked about this before but each of the era two books feels like it reflects a different spin on the Western genre in some way, right? Like I wouldn't call most of this Western necessarily, but of the time frame, right? And so like each one has a very different touch. And this one now has begun to like really own the noir, like detective aspect, which is really cool. It's a, it's a great spin. You know, last book we, we referred to as the Indiana Jones book because that's how most of it feels. Shadows is maybe the book without the genre that's most clear. And yeah. Alloy of Law feels like, a western detective shoot 'em up vigilante justice kind of kind of book so mm-hmm. yeah I, I agree with that yeah so cool all right well, let's talk let's talk about the book itself we get a lot of meat in this week too what's crazy is this is a technically like just a smidge longer than last week by page count but Question count is like double. There's so much information this week, even though like five chapters are a a crazy action scene. There's still just so much information. There's a five page chapter that I have five statements on that I want to talk about. So like there's so much different chunks. Cool. So we start chapter or we start part two with chapter 20 with an exploration of the outer city of building chief port of trade with the southern continent and the city that seems to be built in just perfect neat rows there's a lot of sort of preciseness to all of this that feels really unsettling in the same way that the suburbs do in general or in get out either either way the portrayal of of that i think is is fascinating it's also in many ways a technological marvel with both an above ground and underground rail system and designed for the eventual expansion that even more access to cars will bring it has what what i assume based on the description is the precursor to highways and boulevards as they're kind of broken out and explained it's just so interesting to examine and this is the meatiest since the description of Ellendale that we got in Shadows of Self that we get of a city and especially of a rough city, a roughs quote city. Yeah. And I mean, they, they say it's effectively a metropolis. Like this mm-hmm. feels very Chicago to me. <laughs> Entirely. That was yeah. exactly the analog in my head. Yeah. I still haven't seen Get Out. I should do that. Mm, put it on the list. Yeah. I'll put that on the list. But man, yeah, it's the arguably have an underground system but it's mostly a front for nefarious bomb making so (laughs) also chicago also chicago (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it's cool to see how in awe like marisy is right away coming in and and it feeds into so much of the rest of this right like the way that this is built is also a wonderful aspect of the world building especially when moonlight starts to break it down right like this idea and the way that this is centered and the way that this is all spawned out is just so so cool 
Mm-hmm. We're introduced to Moonlight, though, over the course of this conversation, and we've met her before, as we find out through throughout the premise of it, and you know, the idea of sort of this interrogation. There's so much here to say about her in this interaction. I particularly like kind of her focus on imagery and how we as people tend to copy and be these mimes we all we're all inheriting things from each other and using this example of the child in the house and the way that everyone draws the symbol for home the same way is is so interesting because we all think that we're individual but actually it's it's much more of a harmonious blend of you know we we all have the same i didn't mean harmonious in the fucking shard way you can put your put your smile down but there's also a fascinating dose of mystery here as Marcy doesn't know the name of Moonlight and thinks that it's this new name. Like, I've never heard that before because, of course, Scadriel has never been described as having a moon and as such leads her to note, leads Moonlight to note that she's not from this planet either when asked if she's from the southern continent. You know, it's basically like, no, I'm not from there. There's just so much to get in, get into with Moonlight, but I'd like to, to focus maybe on the character and, you know, whatever else. Spin it, spin it however you like. Yeah, my initial read on this book or on this section was audiobook. And mm. she shares, or she very nearly shares a voice with Milan. So I assumed mm. that to be the case. Like, I, I assumed this to be Milan before it's revealed who she is. Um, it's brief. Like, that's a 30 second little delay mm-hmm. between when she starts talking and when we learn who she is. But still. Um, right. Interesting to see that. And. Curious if there is any connection between her and the Chandra people. Like we know we, she says that she's a hundred percent human, but the features are different and she's not from this planet. I, I, I just, I'd be curious to see if there's anything to come off of that or if it's just that they happen to have a similar voice in audio form like I'm, I'm, i might be entirely reading into this too much as far as the comment about the house and the drawings go um mm-hmm. that was extremely interesting to me and has truly made me think about it since since i initially read this like it's it stayed in my brain and i'm not sure what to make of it like yeah we're very susceptible to copying and creating sort of a unified symbol for things as a people to make communication better. Like that makes sense. Um, Breaking things down to their, to their raw components, to their core components and like showing the most simplified, most ubiquitous version of it makes sense. Like Like it really is a gateway to thinking about human, like human nature and, mm-hmm. and communities in a way that I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expected to like have an existential, like humanistic sort of spiraling thought about this, but (laughs) I did. Yeah. It it's, it's incredible how, how much Moonlight is able to kind of pull on that and like tug on you to like, think about it in a very different way. And she's, she's intriguing. There's a lot more, there's a lot more to come. Of course, even over the course of this week, as she goes by Kim and you know, we, we get to learn more about, what it is and kind of we don't know who she works for but we know the we we kind of have we've got some we've got some ideas <laughs> we do we do get at least one solid solid clue we got we got some thoughts but that doesn't happen until much later but yeah i i mean i think that often you can have characters feel unreal when they go on tangents like this but it actually feels so tangible because every other character is so well grounded and she is 
a mysterious person from literally another world. Yeah. Speaking of the world, mm-hmm. has it been confirmed that Scadriel doesn't have a moon before this? I mean, every time they here's the thing. Confirmed by absence, right? It's never been there, and so they don't even know what a moon is. So why would any one of the POVs describe a moon? That's fair. Okay. You know? Yeah. yeah. So it, it, there's there's your like confirmation of something you never thought about with the world is the fact that there isn't a moon. I do believe I brought it up all the way back in either well or like the original Mistborn, but I guess they talk a lot about starlight, but they never talk about mm-hmm. moonlight. Okay. Which is why it's a great name. Great name. Hoyd and Moonlight as well know each other very well, it seems. And there's a question of who's watching who really whenever they're interacting. What do you think about this in regards to Hoyd and the like? I think this is going to be the point. Like, I I don't know what to think about their relationship or anything, Mm -hmm. but this conversation and this like interaction is going to be what breaks Hoyd wide open for us going forward because Marisi Hmm. can't put shit down. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because Mary C like will be left with this puzzle of who this guy is and she'll be able to dig a little bit potentially. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting too, just as a general note for the week that we get so much more of interactions with Hoyd than we ever have before in any of the books. It's generally a cameo. He's just here hanging out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what this does tell us, though, is that Hoyt is not working with Moonlight, and we know later on that Moonlight is working for Kelsier, so that little grudge match maybe hasn't been, that that little sort of rivalry hasn't been quelled yet. Mm-hmm. Right. They're still kind of, not necessarily enemies, they seem fine. <laughs> they seem okay yeah like they they don't seem antagonistic towards each other they just kind of seem to live in the same space yeah yeah exactly it's they're just kind of sharing air to some degree but it's great it doesn't seem like they're working against each other either which is the other Mm -hmm. the other bit too inside of that there's also just a great i mean we were talking about some of the philosophy and the the sort of moralism that Moonlight gets on these different tangents. And the one that gets me is is a further extension of what we were talking about earlier with the homes. Uh, it's this idea about like mimetic ideation. And she says, has it ever struck you how art is so destructive? Each new movement consumes the one that came before it, chops it up and feeds on the corpse, takes the bones but drapes new skin on them. Each new piece of art is in some way a parody of what has come before. And this seems super about relevant crisis. right now. Yeah. With like AI art. Ooh, yeah. Good point. And the the rise of it and its controversy and sort of legislation on copywriting it or like is it is it art as a sort of zeitgeist question? But given this commentary, and this has obviously been written well before that sort of those methods of creation of AI created art weren't weren't around or mm-hmm. were in their like infancy when this was being written. So I'd be curious if Brandon has any sort of commentary on that topic and if it reflects sort of the this 
breakdown of what art is and where art comes from. Ooh, I'm sure he probably does. I don't know how publicly he's said it. And I feel like if, if anything, I probably would have heard it on a podcast. But I do I do find this entire conversation fascinating. Our art has the capability of being a tool, but is also very dangerous for the things aforementioned. We don't need to fully get into that side of the conversation. I'm very interested in where this goes. But at the same time, as someone of whom creates and works on creating things it is just the idea of it is creatively fatiguing the idea that i can spend five i've spent the last five years of my life becoming a decent writer right and by my own assertion i don't know if i'm better or worse whatever i i'm perfecting that skill and i'm developing my art and the idea that someone can just go, oh, we're going to scrape all of the writing from all of these books and then be able to pull it off with like chat five GPT or whatever and write you, you know, statements and sentences and build and write every copyrightable story of all time forever, you know, by just running long enough is the most creatively frustrating and fatiguing dark web brain shut down. I don't want to live anymore shit. So being an artist right now, I can I can feel that pain very viscerally, and I can't imagine how our art friends feel about it. Yeah. Like that sucks. But But at the same time, it like it is a tool. Like it's a new tool to be used. I, I'm not and, okay. Like no, I no, definitely no, don't want to have I'm, this conversation. I, I don't want to get into it. Yeah. I I, right. I do not know enough to actually have an opinion on it. Um, right. I, but I feel for the, like the stifling nature of things coming out around it and like feel badly that that is a side effect of this technology or, or potentially the direct effect of it. But anyway, oh, yeah. hopefully it can I, be used I, for good as well is I guess my point. Yeah. I, and I do think that that's where the, the future of something like this lies. Right. And I think that that is. You know, that that is what I was trying to say is I wasn't trying to cut you off to like that. I disagree necessarily. I do. But I do also think that it can be used as a tool. There's there's some things. But that conversation is very nuanced and would take its own two hour, three hour podcast episode to like really get into in substantial ways. So I don't want to I don't want to try to do more than say, you know, I feel that that pain it's also very useful it's incredible for quick concepts of ideas as someone who literally can't like i'm so fucking bad at drawing and i have a vivid imagination i've turned to using words to describe things i can now on the backs of a lot of people who train this model create things without a whole lot of effort to imagine something more clearly or to see it manifested so it is also a tool but it is not without its fair share of problems. Right. I'll just put it there. Yeah. But I am very curious as to what Brandon would think about it. And especially, I mean, this is also just the idea that like all you're doing, all we're doing as artists or like anyone who does anything is taking what someone did before and iterating on it. So, you know. Right now, this podcast is an iteration of a number of podcasts. It's an iteration of a radio show originally, and it's an iteration of a book club. And 
you know, it's it's just painting over with different strokes. And we hope that people like us more because we're funnier than they are and perhaps more insightful about things like memesis and memetic copying. And maybe we make good cocktails. Ostensibly. Ostensibly. Yeah. It's so it's so it is so like profound and life threatening and I hate it for how simple the phraseology is. It also is it's also a little reductive, but the general like mimesis is reductive existence like that. Like this, again, is a very big topic that we've talked about at length in in Red Rising. So if you if you would like to hear more on our thoughts on mimeticism, most of Iron Gold <laughs> deals with a lot of that. So cool. All right. There's also this great casual test that goes on inside the scene where they talk about the the person wearing the mask, white mask, black mask, obviously knowing that you wore black tells her. But we also get a lot of information about the shards and there's a lot of other background here that kind of lingers in the periphery. And PJ, I can't lie and say I, I don't know all of these answers. I do. But I have curiosity based on the the impressions that you get from yeah. these things. And this gets into like this general idea of like, how how much did these things stand out to you? Did you breeze over them? Are you curious for more? Because like I know exactly what she's talking about, like a hundred percent of it. And this is some of that connectiveness. Like, it does it stand out to you? Like, what 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 do you take away? What's this leave you with? All right. So imagine you have a hand, like a, a human hand. I have two. You you do have two. But imagine you have another one in the, in those two hands. You're holding a third hand and all the skin goes away and all the muscles go away and all of the tissue goes away and you're left with this like this just pile of bones. Mm-hmm. Effectively unrecognizable of what they are. But if you know and you, you write the name of all the bones write the name of all the bones on the bone and you look at a bone and if you intimately understand the hand and its construction and how how things connect you understand what that bone's for but if you don't it's just a fucking bone i don't know man like i i so badly want to understand how all of these things connect and like what's going on the the one that stuck out to me the most was odium and mm-hmm. like his, uh, his collection of things, like what what was it that was described that he like was characterized by some some different grab of power in some way? Like it, like I'm so curious about all of this information and how it connects and how it relates to each other and to what we already know. But there is zero connective tissue in any of this, and I have no idea mm-hmm. where any of these hand bones fit (laughs) that's fair that's fair and that makes sense this is where like remember i mean long time ago when we were just talking about this book even to begin with i was like i'm kind of afraid because it's going to be pulling in a lot of other things and i wonder if it's ever going to be too much and this is the beginning of some of those things and it's like is it too much versus you know do do you feel left out or is it just like you're saying a bone on a hand i appreciate that metaphor i think it actually works really well to communicate with the idea like you understand the structure but you know you need to like i get that it it does connect yeah (laughs) i just have no idea where or how you just just don't have the tissue and you can't really yeah Yeah. can't fabricate that that makes sense to clarify an odium 
here's the the quote and they're talking about the 16 right and she's comparing them to art and like how they improve their stocks right these pieces of art exist mercy and your planet planet's god holds two of them ruin and preservation indeed that makes harmony the most valuable the most invested being in the cosmere one of the other 16 decided the best way to improve his stock was to try and destroy all of the others he managed it in a few cases and she replies with and that is trell and moonlight shakes her head and says no his name is odium trell autonomy is a different idea which is she's creating more of herself and trying to split herself up over more places to ensure that she'll be preserved i guess that's what stuck out to me thank you for rereading that yeah what stuck out to me is that that does that tactic doesn't seem off the table for trell she she is going by conquest and trying to force the other gods out but she doesn't seem above outright killing another god or destroying another god yeah I, I don't think here's here's an interesting spin on this. And and this is this is something that I think maybe we'll get more information on as the story goes on, right? Or as the general Cosmere continues to spin. I, I think that her intent here isn't necessarily to kill everyone, right? Or to like kill harmony. I think it's just to kill the people on the planet. Like she's not she's not chasing after killing harmony, seemingly, it seems. I don't know about that. Because I don't I don't I don't think she's outright looking for annihilation. I think she's threatening it as a right. way to get to harmony. But she she currently has power over harmony. I don't know that she needs, you know, like she's blinding him actively. I don't yeah. think she's trying to hunt harmony necessarily. Well, no, we'll see. But I, but I don't think she's above it is my point. Sure. Yeah. Like yeah, I, yeah. I think that, that is a contingency. Like I think her her plan revolves around not destroying harmony, but I don't think that's not a backup plan. Right. Don't, right. That's don't not think off that's the table. Not, yeah, I don't think that's off the table. Sorry for the double yeah. negative. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. I got it. But yeah, it's it's a lot to to unpack there too. So I I totally get it. I I believe too that there's there's a lot to the shards are a really fun thing to talk about once you have all of the context because it is a very interesting system and there's there's a lot of fascination and i think he's done a very good job of laying it out but there are like key pieces of information that are tucked inside of the other story so i have to like i get to sit on my thumb until we eventually get there but i'm gonna enjoy thumb sitting for as long as i can i guess (laughs) fair enough (laughs) it's kind of the Kind of the methodology. It's crazy. I, I honestly, like, even when we thought about covering this, I did not expect this to be that big of a deal to, like, have all of this other stuff floating around in my head. But it is. I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I probably would have started with Stormlight and then worked the other direction for for your sake. But I don't think that this is necessarily wrong. And I like what we've done. So I, I think that to the point of the what you're talking about with autonomy, we talked a little bit about her motives and her rewards and, and thoughts here. Um, I think it's interesting when looking at the city of building, I really get strong, strong Ayn Rand, Fountainhead, mm-hmm. Atlas Shrugged, mostly Fountainhead, sort of the the way that she's even talked about through Moonlight and like the way that Moonlight's talked about it, I should say, is it's meant to be this sort of... She rewards an individual 
for creating a system that is identical. You know what I mean? So there's there's something so fascinating about like rewarding the individual to do something that is then dispersed to make it homogenous. Yeah. That's there's, a good call. there's something really, really interesting there. That is. It seems effective too. Like that's the weird yeah. thing. Like that's the that's the crazy thing. It seems it seems effective so far, the system that she's put in place. Mm-hmm. Um it makes me curious about the state of the rest of the Cosmere mm. and how that looks and what she's currently got control over and how that relates to like this seed that she's laid. That's like, we know this question. architecture is taken from, I don't remember the, the term used when describing it, but brutalism. Yeah. Right. Which I'm assuming is effectively Earth's brutalism as well. Like it seems described the same way. Yeah, yeah. It's this kind of pattern, those straight lines, those reflective panels, that's from a Taldane movement known as brutalism. Yep. Hmm. Don't know what Taldane is. I don't think. Have I been exposed to the Taldane? Only in the smallest of ways. You... Again, I did say you had free reign on Arcanum Unbounded outside of Edge Dancer. So you could be, I'm but not. you have not been. <laughs> but yeah, no, you're you've you've heard the name before in Secret History, but you do not know anything else about it outside of hearing the name. Okay. Yeah. It's it's really, 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 really fucky. So it's exciting. Autonomy is great. I, I'm really, really excited to talk more and to focus in on a lot of this. And it's part of the reason that I like it is there's so much diversity inside of the story as far as the powers reach and begin to have conflict with each other and everything else. So, all right. With that, let's get into our second chapter, chapter 21. We move over to Wayne and Hoyt having a conversation as they've arrived at their destination after a brief conversation surrounding the trade of Sir Squeakins for a harmonica. There's a conversation about wishing life was like the stories, and I love Hoyt's response here. I think we live stories every day, ones that we will remember and tell and shape like clay to be what we need them to be. And Wayne comes back with something. Can't be no hero if you're a villain, Hoyd. And I just think that those two, they're they're very, they're on very different sides of the conversation and approaching things from very different directions to begin with. But I think that it's important to remember Hoyd's thing. That's like something that stands in my head is like you are always making a story. You know, you don't need to write them. There was another piece of media that did this really recently, and I love the quote too. I think we talked about it during the Warbreaker episode. But yeah, fuck. So, what you what'd you think? What I love about Hoyd's quote, well, first of all, Warbreaker episode and Hoyd and his stories and his his yeah. ability to talk about stories and tell stories is, I mean, I, I appreciate that this is kind of his most fleshed out example within the Mistborn section of the Cosmere so mm-hmm. far. And it, it, it reflects that storytelling nature that he expressed in warbreaker mm-hmm. but that quote i think we live stories every day ones that we will remember and tell and shape like clay to be what we need them to be i mean that's effectively it's talking about like finding meaning in the mundane and augmenting reality to become the story that we tell to reflect that meaning 
Mm-hmm. I, I find it really cool. <laughs> like maybe, maybe that can become, a, maybe that can come across as like lying to a certain degree if you read into it too much, but I don't think that's the case. I, I, I think he's really talking about the everyday interactions that aren't that important in the moment, but make connections and allow for the forging of new thoughts and ideas and important things. Um, I also think it's so interesting to compare against uh, moonlights, right? Where like everything's a copy, right? It's like, well, regardless of it being a copy, this is a nice like dichotomous little bit here between the chapters is regardless of it being a copy, it is still really important that like, everything is a story anyway so like you have to continue you have to what are you going to do stop like that's not that's not what you're going to do you're going to keep you're going to keep going you're going to keep forging stories and even a boring day is is still a is still a story i think what's interesting to me too here is that he kind of defines the spin like you're saying and i don't think he's advocating for lying i think he's just saying that like the stories become stories when they begin to take on a life, another life. And, you know, some of that is like embellishments that happen over time. You could look at Vin and and even you look at Kelsier, right? Like you you stare back at any of the religions that we really focus on inside of this era too. And that is a perfect example of a story that has been blown out in the way that it's been shaped like clay by the person and now has been formed into this bigger thing. Yeah. It's maybe even outgrown the man himself. And even if it's not embellishment, there's consolidation right. that turns yeah. one one story or two stories into one or two ex- two like mm-hmm. two experiences into simultaneous things. Like there's a lot of ways a story can get shaped. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, I'm totally with you. I love this for that reason. Yeah. I think it's great. So I had to pull out the quote. As far as did- the comment from Wayne goes. Mm-hmm. That felt weirdly shoehorned. Like that, that felt weirdly starkly different from what we were talking about and directly goes into a conversation that you and I have had multiple times already. So I won't rehash it too much, but it it feels pointedly injected into this conversation. And for whatever reason, felt out of place. Sure, sure. Yeah, I I think that there is something to be said about this, right? But I I really like Hoyt's comeback too, right? So like he mentions this because he's thinking about you know the the last story Ma told me and like stories in general is what this is fixating on, and so we're we're talking about plot, you know, and, and the way that stories go, but. In most stories, it is the villain who knows the hero best. And that's so interesting, especially when talking about Wayne, right? If Wayne knows, if Wayne believes that he's a villain, that means he should know exactly what a hero looks like. And so, you know, what's what's to stop him from making that change, too? I think Hoyt is such is being such a good guy here with that rationale. It's it's good. Mm-hmm. There's also the other is, side of that too, which is the is obvious, Wayne but. arguing that he should be the villain because he knows wax best. No, it's not about knowing wax at all. It's about he's he's arguing that he's a villain because of the murder that he did. And he hasn't outgrown it because he's still mm-hmm. a bad person from that. Okay. 
But what if Wayne, what if Wayne does become the villain? I mean, that's that's your own train to ride. <laughs> Do you think he's going to be the villain? I don't know. I don't think so. Cool. I think right. he's earned his redemption arc. He's fair <laughs> enough. He's yeah. We got we got some <laughs> Vendel and Wayne are posing in these moments. I I just kind of find it wonderful that they're taking up these these skeletons and adoptions and Wayne really getting into the mind of I Francis Fran Francis works wonders. Wayne having to remind Vendel to stay in character is also just lovely. It made me laugh this time reading it physically on the page. The comedy landed perfectly. And it works wonders getting the group to bring out the sequence through clever conversation. And they managed to worm their way through all of these different members to make him come out and learning all these things through clever, clever lies and deceptions. What do you make of their conniving paired brilliance? So something in particular was like, Wayne reminding Vendel to stay in character. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to t- take a little bit of a wild stab at this. I think the answer is truly a lot simpler, but I, I feel like I have the framework of a rationally justified like reason for this. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to kind of explore it with you and see what you think. Sure. Um, so we know we know of sort of the mystical, magical connection, or natural, I guess you could call it, on this planet, connection between like form and identity and, and personality. To a certain extent, that exists on our world too, but that, that's mm-hmm. not as starkly and, and... It's not codified. Yeah, exactly. Right. And we, we know Chandra take on, through observation and through knowledge... And through understanding and and through history, a personality based on the bones that they're wearing. So, Vendel hasn't switched bones in this scenario, right? Like, he is still in, in the same bones that he has been in the entire time. So, potentially trying to take on another person's, take on another personality while wearing the same bones that have an ascribed personality might feel very unnatural and difficult to do. He is wearing different bones in oh, this scene. Fuck. All right, never mind. But <laughs> I well, I don't think that that actually disconnects though from what you're saying before, which is that like there maybe is some some sort of base identity ascribed to the bones that you're picking up, right? Like you can only be a certain way because of those bones, right? But I think I think I just find this particularly powerful because you get to tell the immortal guy that you're doing a bad job doing the thing that you literally, that defines your entire being. Have we formally talked about my question to Brandon on the show? I genuinely don't know because I feel like I answer the question all the time when people ask about like that question that you pose. It's relevant now. So it's very relevant. Yeah. To definitively do it. Like I, I I know we've talked about it maybe on devil's cuts before and maybe in the, the, the discord but i don't i don't recall if i've done it on the show yet but my question to brandon when i so i got picked for the meet and greet i got like book signing stuff and got to ask brandon a question when we went to dragon steel and my question was in relation to identity and imitation if what 
if if Wayne's ability to imitate people was magical, mm-hmm. it was kind of the crux of my question. Yeah. I said it much more concisely than that, and like with better terminology that I can't fucking remember right now. But anyway, the answer was no. And with the caveat of he gives Wayne a little bit of an edge on basically everything because he's an Alamancer and and is inherently more connected, more invested, if you want to use the terminology of the of the book, and is thereby kind of naturally better at basically everything. But his ability itself is not magical. Which I found really odd. Like I truly expected it to be a magical ability. I I totally get that. I'm I'm with you on some of the maybe oddity there, but I think that is what makes given given the sort of strictness of that answer and it not being magical in any context, I, I really it, it gives me a layer of appreciation, I think, for how good he is and how good he is compared to other people and how good Condra say he is, right? Like literally bossing around a chondra for being bad at this is is incredible you know it's it's funny to say we we say we've like painted i think wayne to some degree to be like a con man in the way that he adopts these personalities but the reality is he's just an actor like wayne is just an incredible actor in in all regards and he can live in those personalities and inhabit them in a way that others can't even physically wearing the bones of others you aren't as good of an actor as i am which is kind of a fun fun spin on it yeah, I, I thought the question was great, which is why I know that we were trying to come up with questions while we were sitting there and you were like, you were like floundering on a couple of things. And I was like, well, ask the one that like you genuinely had and remember from before and that like just figure out how to phrase it. And we had plenty of time. So I asked him about Elden Ring because I wasn't going to ask a question about Stormlight in front of PJ. That's fair. I would have walked away if you told me to. Yeah, but that would have been weird. I would have never, you know, <laughs> I would I would have felt very weird about it. <laughs> Fair. So instead, we talked about Elden Ring, which is cool. So, yeah, he did not like Melania, but the boss. Anyway, cool. All right. Well, does that, does I, that I, answer I just, everything you wanted to talk about for that question? I, I think pretty much. I mean, the, the big thing for me is like, you know, like like you said, and I think also you brought up a great tangent on just the Condor in general that we hadn't really talked about since, you know, originally being introduced to them. And that's like how much of the personality do they really take on? And the answer there is not as much as we think, but they do take on some level of personality. Mm-hmm. It seems so. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. As they finally get this sequence to come out and everything going, there's a sting on a sting executed by the Bilming police <laughs> while Marisie's Aundel police wait in the wings. Ah, shit. What a great stinger to this chapter. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> I get it. I do them all the time. You can, you can have your one. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> that was bad. That was tar- that was bullshit. You know it. It was deliberately bad. Yeah. Yeah. It was deliberately bad. That's a thing. Okay, with that, True. we go into chapter 22. We move to Marisi, and she's got a lot to sort out after finding out that the local captain intervened in this moment. And there's a question over jurisdiction here as we meet Captain Blantich. Blant... Blant- oh, God, I... I said this name in preparation of this episode. I listened back to it. Blantic? Blantac? Blant... Blantash? Blantish? Blantock? I'm going to figure it out later, but I'm going to say it a bunch today. It's going to be wrong a bunch. 
Don't send me angry messages. Blantac. Blantoc. Blant. 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 Mm, I don't trust okay. her in the slightest. And we're kind of given reasons to trust her later. And I still don't like, I, I'm, I'm so much more willing to assume and believe that the entirety of every public works and public service department and every like government operated person in the city of Bilming is Owned and controlled by the set. Like, it doesn't make sense to me that they can, th- they can have such a, such a large scale operation, so rife full of corruption without being entirely in control of the government <laughs> hmm. okay. and, and its different branches. Hmm. All right. I, I dig the answer. You know, I, I think that that's fun. I didn't ask this earlier. Do you trust Moonlight? You haven't not trusted a character in a while. You've been pretty good with trusting people for a bit now. So this is I interesting. I I didn't mm-hmm. until the conversation, which I don't know if it's happened yet, about the Marewell flower. No, that's later. We That hasn't happened. Like, I think I do. But I like I viscerally don't want to, you know, like, does mm-hmm. that does that make sense? Like, I, I feel like I shouldn't. I really feel like right. I should not trust her. But with the information that we've been presented with. I will concede that it seems OK. All right, cool. It does seem very convenient, though that can come from a whole lot of that can come from many different directions. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what to make of it. That, I mean, to, Hey, to me that that makes enough sense. That's a good enough rationale. I was just curious, you know, especially since you don't trust Blant Blantish. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's, it's interesting. You've been on a trusty train. Like I was saying, since at least the first trilogy, not, I mean, not the Have whole I? first trilogy since at least the end Kind of mostly, I I think you've like distrusted a couple of like obvious characters to distrust, which is fine. Like Ed Warren, for instance, you know when he should. But back I don't up, like, like well, he's distrust not Wayne just because. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, fair. by the by the innate basis of Wayne, you know it's hard to trust. Yeah. So interesting. I just I found that funny, so I wanted I wanted to dig in there a little bit. Marcy obviously makes an impassioned argument for the why of why she shouldn't be, why they shouldn't be fighting over this in the moment, and then tries to make friends with this woman very quickly. She also realizes that after seeing the sequence, that there is a metal born upon them, despite Blantich's note of good authority that there isn't, as everyone is blasted across the room by an incredible alimantic steel push. You can absolutely imagine this as an adapted scene can't you like this is so cinematic for me like the the, this and the rest of like this chapter and like maybe the next chapter it's so scripty for some reason (laughs) you're you're totally right the the entire sequence in that like takes place surrounding this guy like basically chapter 22 
to even even the chapter with Hoyd. So looking from the section with Hoyd through when Wax sits down with Entrone and we see Entrone again, all of that is actiony and feels like a like a script. You're you're entirely correct. I think it reads exactly like an adapted scene. This I, I think it's interesting that you highlight this one here, and I know that obviously you're talking about the rest of it as well. This one is the one that I definitely can imagine exactly how it would happen, but I also get the difficulty of picture of portraying allomancy as this being a more difficult thing to portray because my in my brain instinct when you're like this is a, an excellent easy to adapt scene is when that push happens. I thought that there would be like some blue effect on the screen. I imagine some like AOE burst, right? That like is covering an area in a half semisphere as it like explodes outwards and then pushes all these things as it hits them, which isn't how Alamancy works either. So I, I like, I can see, I totally see the things flying back and people with their guns and the guns launching off and like all of that works. I mean, Magneto works on TV. Of course this works, but sometimes the strength is the hard part that I have like really trying to figure out a good way to picture yeah in in moments like how do you how do you make a duralamin push feel substantially different from a standard push you know i mean i think a cheap way to do it is to have an inconsequential giant metal object go flying off in a different direction that's not in the line of like not not in a direction that's dire or dangerous to our people Mm -hmm. but just proves that like hey this fucking anvil is fucking off into like he yeeted the anvil (laughs) like half a mile that way like (laughs) that's a fair point i don't think that's cheap i think that's actually a good good point but i and i'm not again i was i was definitely i love this scene i love what happens here and i definitely can see it all adapted because it does feel very script worthy it was just one of those things where my brain pictured it and i was like that's not how you would portray that, though. Like that, that wouldn't work for Alamancy, but it is visually how it feels as written. So it was just right. an interesting experience that I had with it this time. But I'm with you. Ugh. With that, we start to get into the action here. We get into chapter 23. Marisy, though, you know, everyone's getting blasted back and gets feels the force of this push. But Marisy is more cleverly equipped than the rest of them. She wears a gun belt that functions like a pair of tearaway pants. And as her metallic vials and equipment fly off of her without tossing her back, she manages to escape this bit unscathed. But this confirmed it. This sequence, the sequence here has been hemologically spiked in order to make that happen between the Duralamin and the, you can't have two of the abilities, right? So definitely spiked. There's also a supposition as Vendel, Wayne, and Marisi finally make it into the speed bubbles together that they share that the set must have been aware of one of the stings, but it was unlikely that they knew of both because it seems as though Blantich did have certain information but did not have all of it. I think I would argue or I I would believe that anyone super high ranking and maybe this goes back into sorry sorry to like lose my train of thought a little bit but maybe this no, goes you're back good. into the conversation about harmony and the number of spikes and control but i would think that anybody uh, sequence or above <laughs> in this organization is spiked to the point where telson or trell has the ability to control them hmm 
like I, I would think at this point, no less than three spikes in anyone high ranking. Mm-hmm. Just based on the the controlling nature that they've exhibited so far, and maybe the existence of the trellium spike negates the ability for harmony to interact with it in general because of the sort of repulsion factors that we saw on a micro scale when looking at the spikes themselves and the metals themselves in their interactions. So if they're spiked with, with trellium harmonies, unable to act, maybe that's a possibility. I, I, I don't know, but yeah, I think it's hard for me to believe that Telson has the capacity to trust anybody to really follow through with her plans without having the ability to to override any of the actions and keep an eye on it. Hmm. Interesting. That's, that's interesting. I, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't think that that's. And additionally, that's presented as a perk. Like, Hey, we'll give you all these fucking powers when you get to this rank. Like it's a double edged sword in that respect. Mm Mm-hmm. That that makes sense. It, it's a, it would be a curious thing to know about the set whether or not that is fully the case and like how that's divided. We get we get some interesting notes later that I definitely want to bring this back up with when we get to Marsh and some of the mentions there. So I'm I'm gonna hold on to some of the commentary until we get to that chapter. But I think that there's definitely something to be said in general about obviously the spikes about sacrificing. What's what's very interesting is that, and I find this very interesting about autonomy in general as described so far is autonomy autonomy's intent is really hard to parse precisely like it's actually much harder than some of the other intents i mean compared to ruin for instance it's it's not quite as clean i would say and i there's nothing wrong with this i don't think that this is a fault of anything but it makes for something very interesting because you can totally see autonomy doing something like that making the choice to unite them all under one thing because then they can kind of function autonomously but under underneath one single power but at the same time that's removing someone's autonomy and their ability to act on their own and so which spin on autonomy is it in that moment it seems like the god autonomy is trying to have it the best of both ways which is so interesting yeah Mm -hmm. it's all about perception and justification setting up systems is is part of what i see in this as well yeah oh god on that scale all these people are fucking ants anyway so right well right yeah exactly (laughs) you got to be the queen you got to you got to get a queen going yeah. Which is definitely what Trell is supposed to be. So so while they're in the bubble, what do you make of Vendel's adherence to the first contract? I, I just found this to be like a funny little bit, but when yeah. he mentions that like he won't kill. Honestly, I expected it. Based on the fact that he's a desk jockey most of the time, and presumably that's by design. It's it's been a very very long time since this contract has been directly relevant. But Condra sure. are very slow to change. So I like I thought it was odd that M- Milan was willing to break the contract and it turns out she's like one of the two anomalies her and her uh, adoptive father. <laughs> basically are the only two that don't follow the first contract 
Yeah, yeah, or that seemed to not, right? So, like, even... Right. Yeah. At the very least that we've seen, for sure. I wonder if more... She's an 11th, a 7th generation? Do you remember she's what seven. one is? 7. I wonder if other 7th generations act and behave similarly. If they still survived. Like, who knows how many um, of them are around still. I mean, yeah, I think I think a lot of... I think the way that it's talked about in Shadows of Self is that pretty much all the Chondras survived that weren't killed. Meaning, and by killed, I mean, like, literally the ones that were killed by, say, mostly the second generations. But there are plenty that could have taken the path out of immortality, though. That's totally a thing and could have taken the the death option that they found. There's also that. Mm. It's true. Woo! So, we're interrupted in the middle of them making this plan though as a stout woman wearing a bowler hat walks into wayne's bubble she's a slider too they quickly separate and she leaves the bubble after taking a swing at marisy with a dueling cane there's a perfect comedy moment as they prepare to each go their own way to handle kind of the scene and the action that's about to happen after they leave the bubble and vendel shouts not ready after everyone says that they're ready and has begun going it's just perfect I mean, like I'm going to kind of continue the the thread of screenwriting here. Like th- this feels so comedic and so cleanly written mm-hmm. as an adaptable like scene in a in a TV mm-hmm. show or movie or whatever whatever it might be, but something that would come across on the screen very 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 easily. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Totally. I'm with you on that. That's part of the reason that I love it so much is it's just it's right there. It's great. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the slider? Woo-hoo. We'll talk about her more later. But when you first saw her cross that bubble, what was your what was your shot thought? Uh, I, I was kind of flabbergasted because I expected them to to have described some sort of motion that indicated that there was a speed bubble being put down or like noticing a shimmer or something like that because mm-hmm. they so intimately understand what Wayne's speed bubbles look like. But there was no indication of that. And we were kind of left briefly temporarily floundering on what could have been happening with this mm-hmm. person ability, like able to just kind of waltz into the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, I, I totally agree with you. I would have imagined my imagination pictured this as like a bunch of bubbles appearing and then like disappearing on as this person gets closer right but maybe that's just the visual blur of the speed bubble going up and down and it seems like she's walking you know i mean the time dilation of what that is yeah but i I agree with you i kind of had the same perspective also we we actually in your and my visualization we imagine it as though there's some colored there that it's almost like a physically impermeable barrier is kind of the way i mean obviously you can throw shit through it but like imagine if you will a tent right or a dome around you you're standing in one of those yoga balls the like sitting yoga chair balls and like you it's a it's a physical thing right that you interact with or that you can see and maybe it's tinted blue or whatever but in reality the bubbles are really just the distortion effect that we we would see of light right yeah, I, I think they've described it in the past as a shimmering, almost like a bonfire, like looking at mm-hmm. air above a bonfire where it's kind of yeah, sort of wavy. So that's what I imagine right. is like a localized dome 
of that effect. Yeah, right, right. I And I think it's really easy to get pulled into the other side of this, which is like, oh, it's a blue bubble that just like pops out of them, you know, default color bubble and forget that it's the shimmer, right? Which is the other side of this with her approaching is that it's not like you'd see a blue bubble pop up and then collapse and pop up and then collapse. You would see conflicting shimmers in theory, and that's what you'd be looking at as like the obfuscation layer. So yeah. that might just appear like her walking. Mm-hmm. And so. for that reason, I'm glad that they don't spend a lot of time dwelling on that before revealing mm-hmm. what's actually happening. Right, right. Yeah, this this has been Science Hour with PJ and Cross talking about bubbles. I like bubbles. I like, I like bubbles. Uh, <laughs> Mary C sends Blantac to take care of the constables to reinforce the scene with cover and finds one of her three elemental grenades that she had brought with her as she does a floppy body hits the car next to her and again there's some perfect humor from Vendel I have been defeated I'm billing you for these bones <laughs> just I the so... I have been defeated is so good <laughs> I have been defeated with a broken jaw yeah uh, man i am so so insanely appreciating both like vendel and the humor in general in this section like it it has been on point and and well timed mm-hmm. well well spread out so yeah love it yeah i'm i'm totally with you on that it's definitely a favorite an easy favorite in that way but these pair of commanders, Blantic and Marisi, eventually settle on a retreat. They're police, after all, not soldiers. And this is a situation that's turned way more than, you know, what they should be able to manage or can manage. And it gets even worse as we continue to see the scene sort of begin to dissolve as hope disappears with this giant rotating machine gun being brought out of one of the set's trucks. And the barrel starts to spin and you can see that fucking shot. This again, perfect visual image of it like popping out or them whipping off the tarp or whatever. It's spinning and then wax diving in through a window, the glass shattering. Very reminiscent to me of the scene from the original Mistborn with Vin popping through the window to kill the Lord Ruler. Just as that same, same energy for me. So. it's a pretty huge oh fuck moment when that thing gets wheeled out. Yeah, and it, it really does remind me of Tolkien. And mm. the, there is, so famously he was, was a soldier in World War I. Yeah. And has, has written recountings of his first experience with a machine gun of these two German guys on top of a hill in a little nest with a single machine gun, just annihilating dozens of people, just mowing people down and how insane and lopsided that fight is. Mm -hmm. And like, suddenly revealing a machine gun definitely gives me those vibes of like holy shit they're out they're out like technology is the beginning and end of of armies like mm-hmm. if you have equal numbers but less advanced technologies you're going to lose mm-hmm. and sometimes even if you have more numbers but 
like sub like in inferior technology you're going to lose just because like people get really really efficient at killing other people yeah yeah i mean especially on a longer time scale right like that's one of the you know we've we've i think we've speculated about this i don't know how much we've talked about on the show but like this idea of this sort of long universe where this magic is so important and central which is really science if you if you boil it down it's a science system not a magic system but obviously it incorporates in but it seems like technology is is beginning to grind down that barrier between an alamancer and otherwise i think one of the things that isn't explored too much in the series so far in era two is any emotional alamancy at all likely because of the eventual pervasiveness of alamantically lined hats and stuff like that so that you can't be affected or coats you know all kinds of things right by alamancy and just you solved the emotional manipulation problem with a piece of technology and advancement yeah blocked out entire subsection that was such a cool aspect of that first series though you know Mm -hmm. right and yeah the fact that it's all but negated here is 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 tough i mean i i think it's just not the focus i think that it could crossland personally believes that the sequel series with era three will include a person of whom is an emotional alamancer because he wants to do spy thrillers. And so if you want to do a spy thriller, emotional alamancy is an incredibly potent and fun way to do it because you can social engineer your way into situations. It would be a very powerful tool for like a femme fatale to have. That's true. You know? Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's just side tangent, but the, the advancement of technology versus the magic thing, I think is really interesting, especially as we start to see the tools proliferate among people and groups. And then you start to see the, the advantage of magic is going to become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller over time, especially as the power is also waning in the bloodlines until Lorassium shows up again. I mean, sure. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Maybe perhaps. Maybe perhaps perhaps all right with that we go to chapter 24 we move to wayne fighting with that we go into chapter 24 we move to wayne fighting this mysterious woman who's mirroring his every move swinging wildly at him we learn her name to be gertruda what do you make of this wayne copycat that we see here i mean immediately it felt too good to be a coincidence you know it, it felt too on the nose to be just coincidentally especially with the obsession with the accent right mm-hmm. right like um through conversation we confirm that sort of thought and especially the comment i think it's later on maybe not even in this chapter saying that she was made for him specifically which is fucking terrifying <laughs> Yeah, what do you what do you think that connotes? I I think it connotes almost coloss like creation of people with a with a vibed personality and ability combination. But I don't I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where do where do you think it came from? I guess is kind of the other side of this thought, like where who what how why is it do you believe it like you said is it a coloss like fabrication or is it a real person or i'd be curious if trell like the trellian hemallergic spike 
a trellium spike, given the idea of autonomy and following that theme, if, if personality can be ascribed onto someone with it. Okay. I'm, I'm, you think I'm right? I'm intrigued. Are going to tell me all of the answers to everything in the Cosmere from here on out. Right. Definitely it. Definitely it. I actually <laughs> almost fucked up in the notes earlier with with something kind of bad, and I didn't realize it until almost too late, and then I caught it. Hmm. But yeah, I've that been many. Not going to tell me what that fuck up was. No, because I can't. Because of course, naturally, you cannot know. If you looked in the version history of the documents, you could figure it out. But <laughs> you'd I'm have to do a decent to. amount of digging. I know. Team no hype, man. Team no hype. You wouldn't have gotten anything from it anyway. It was just, it, yeah, it was not really a any. It wouldn't have ruined anything. It would have just colored a thing a little bit. Okay, Wayne makes his way after escaping Gertrude over to Marisi, and they compose a plan that allows for them to stick it out. And Wax will undoubtedly take care of the coin shot, as we assume, based on everything that he does and his sort of penchant for Flash. And especially if someone uses the same abilities he does, he has to go after them. And that the rest of this fight at that point will mostly become a cleanup. Wayne moves to help to tend to the wounded to help them out in this situation. I, I really enjoy how we don't need the beat for beat on how this all goes down. And this is basically explaining... You don't need it. You get it. You've seen this before, which is good. And then we cut to the more important action, as well as some selfless help of being the hero that Wayne is to help these people who are wounded kind of get to safety. Yeah. I I think what this scene highlights for me is how much I love this group, this crew, and how well they mesh together. It is a very stark difference from Vin and her lone wolf sensibilities Mm -hmm. but it's also a growing and evolving sort of level of teamwork that we're seeing here compared to the previous books it's welcome it's a very welcome evolution Mm -hmm. yeah there's there's a dynamic to it all like the and the dynamic has changed over time of which is what really feels feels great yeah i love it it's so good but i'm totally with you too on the era one comparison because it does that had some lone wolfish like they're they're brought together because they have to be this is their choosing to be involved with each other right consistently yeah so chapter 25 wax chases this man through the skyscape of building and quick quickly recognizes that he's got powers beyond that of normal coin shot with his access to duralumin he picks up his aluminum weapon from a bag that he left on top of the roof and continues the chase through the various rooms and apartment buildings and wow we get some dramatic moments as an apartment a full apartment caves in this would be incredibly well shot i love it and the idea of like you burning just enough to feel kind of the outlines of the buildings and kind of get a sense of where things are very interesting and the coin shot basically just keeps taking pulls from his flask to keep his powers going as well as a mix of duralumin and steel i think we need to drink i have to assume that there's booze in that flask too you, you know? have to assume that right this is our first like modern brush up with duralumin right or has there been some i think in bands there. didn't wax use it at one point i think he did okay but other than that this is the first like modern modern otherwise yeah yeah 
Anyway, I'd be curious if this is actually a similar mixture as to what Harmony provided Wax with mm. those with those vials that he was told to replace his his existing ones with, mm-hmm. or to use instead of was the term a similar mixture meaning meaning duralumin and steel mm. or a, another god metal in steel. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, is duralumin not a god metal? No, no. it's not. So that requires a Duralumin spike? Correct. Yep. Or not necessarily, because that's kind of wonky and fucked up. Because bronze grants steel pushing abilities or something like that. Like the the hemallergy is not a one-to-one. Yeah, a spike takes care of a whole group of attributes, right? So like a bronze spike would steals the sensey stuff, emotional elements he's stolen with. There's there's a whole side chart on the hemological side of things. The assumption is in this scene, because of his skill as a coin shot, he was given a Duralumin spike, mm-hmm. which I have to say, it's not that I don't believe it, but I have to, because obviously I believe the story. It, it's got to be so hard to find a fucking Duralumin misting. Are you kidding me? What, they, they've got no combination of stuff. But they can be imbued with Duralumin, right? You can be imbued with Duralumin, which is what happened here, we assume, because he's a skilled. Hemologically, right? Hemologically, yes. But how do you find the person that you get the Duralumin ability from if they can't burn any other fucking metal? Same question as, like, fucking smokers. Like, how do you find a smoker? Well, that's that's a different problem because they probably they know that they're a smoker. They could be tortured. You could torture people. Like that makes sense to me. Like you could work that out. But someone, what do you mean you can torture people? How does somebody torture- determine that they themselves are a smoker? When they burn, they can burn a metal reservoir, right? Like in theory. But if it doesn't they, have an effect, have have why the would metal. they like? Why would they believe that that was actually doing anything? No, but you and, can like, you can tangibly- feel the burn. I, I I understand. I understand. We're not dealing with a smoker here. We're dealing with someone in development, right? <laughs> Which is just <laughs> as insane because there's even less of an effect. Even less of an effect with development? Yes, that's what I'm trying to I'm trying to get that across is I think that it's crazy. I think there are there are rationales because bronze at the very least registers outside to other people, right? Like you might not know that you're a smoker, but someone who burns sorry. Copper, copper is the anyway because yeah, bronze is what breaks it. So it's copper clad, right? So you would know you you might not know that you're burning copper. You might not care, but someone who is a bronze user would know that you're burning copper when you flip it off potentially. You know, like there's there's a lot of different reasons that like that one is way more detectable. Duralumin though, <laughs> it's like <laughs> literally you can't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. That that was bad, but. <laughs> So point being, that's a lot of trial and error to get a Duralumin spike. You know, like that's a lot of that's a lot of work. Unless the they have some. an ability to read people externally. That is valid. Or if there's another way to make spikes to begin with, mm-hmm. which gets into the marsh stuff. So we'll, we'll we'll wait until we get there. But yeah, I, I mean, it's a very cool thing. I love the flask. I love the touch of the flask. I think that that's great. So. Yeah. 
There's also just a lovely gunfight here that happens, which also seems to point to the man having bronze, given his capability to see in these different moments and see him no matter where he is, where he's going, and the ability to detect those elementic pulses when he burns so that he knows. Wax finally manages to get on top of him and just beats the ever-living shit out of him, forcing the man into a moment of desperation where he then launches them into the air and then also leeches Wax of all of his abilities. So he throws out another elementic power. Such a shame getting leeched like that. Like, <laughs> I thought we were over that. That's medieval shit. Like, nobody should. <laughs> you're fucking fired. <laughs> Thomas, uh, you coming on? When When are you coming? To- <laughs> Siri, call Thomas. <laughs> what I loved about this section was the description of Wax feeling cold upon getting those those medals ripped out of his system yeah because i don't think that had really been described like that before I don't no i think that's was... one of my favorite things in this too is is that moment i think it's incredible as being described because it's burning metals has always been described as a warming feeling so of course it makes sense that it's a coldness right but it's it's never been described that way again it's like the it's like the moon thing you don't know what you're missing until you you know yeah you don't know that it's not there until you know so I still want to know the mechanics of how this works because this is a, a physical, like, it is a physical metal reservoir. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is a stockpiling of metals that are then expended by, to a certain degree, physically burning them. Mm-hmm. So is there a an energy source within those metals that are being tapped into by the by the leecher? Like how how do like how does how do these metal reserves physically change when they're being affected in this external way? Great question. Yep. Yep. Cool. <laughs> Cross is giving me the the Borat thumbs right now. Borat thumbs and then finger guns. I I actually, I would be curious to re-review the Arcanum just to double check. I know that there have been some answers around this vaguely, but I'm not sure where they're from. And like I've said previously, I try to... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This may have technically actually been answered in a broadsheet. The Bands Hmm. of Mourning, it appears. All right. I don't think it's that big of a... So... When you're burning away a person's metals using Nicrosil, it's like pulling the power from the metal, not the physical metal itself, and returning it to an external source. So it's like claiming the power from the metal and moving it somewhere else. So they have to have something to focus on to to deposit that power? No, they're not like charging a different battery. The cosmic sense of other okay, gotcha. energy. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, they're they're not they're not doing anything outside of like you no more. But it is going somewhere. It's not as though that energy preservation of investiture or some such nonsense. I'm sure as a rule exists somewhere, and so as such, I'm sure the this is all wild speculation. Please don't rail me for this. Please just don't rail me unless I consent to it to begin with. Just for the record, sorry. Very agreeable. Don't worry. 
moving on <laughs> preservation of investiture i'm sure it just goes to the spirit realm or wherever the source of the investiture is on the planet right so like yeah if if it's burned for someone i'm sure that's what happens is it spins out in some direction that makes sense and my assumption is the spiritual realm so because we know that invest that's where investiture comes from mostly so mm-hmm. oh wax attempts to down a vial of course because he's been deprived of his abilities but the man is shooting at him and he manages to smash the vial, so he only gets the tiniest drop in his mouth. Wax saves himself from getting shot again with the skillful use of his weight metal mind, making him heavier to slow his momentum as he's also launching into the air. He manages to get a hold of another of the vials while falling in this beautiful moment of desperation, and he downs half the vial, barely making it to survive the fall. I think it's beautiful when he throws it down and uses that as the anchor, just the residual metals. Pretty great. While the man is gone, Hoyt is right there waiting for him. He launches back into the air like a superhero when more people on the ground continue taking pictures of him, capturing him with their Avanotypes. What a, what do you make of this whole sequence and the way that this ends? Ah, oh, man. The, the biggest thing for me is the realization. Like, I know for a fact that pictures have existed in the broadsheets. Like, we've seen them. Mm-hmm. They exist there. I, I get it. But I had, like, we've had access to the broadsheets, but I had never considered pictures, cameras, mm-hmm. or what, yeah. uh, Ivano, Ivanotypes? They call them Ivanotype, yeah. Yeah, whatever whatever they are, cameras, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never considered the populace having access to that. So these exploits of these, like, rogue... <laughs> Effectively, vigilantes, beyond getting reported upon from firsthand accounts, have tangible, believable proof, whether or not they're reporting the correct thing or the accurate thing of what's going down. They they have an arguably accurate picture of the event, and they can spin it however they want. Like It just makes for such more insane broadsheets that can come out of course yeah i i do have a hard time not liking likening this to like a superhero photo right like this feels very i mean you you can spin it whichever direction i think the the photo conversation goes most closely hand in hand with spider-man right like naturally and photos taken and the daily bugle and everything else but it feels it feels very connected there so I think yeah. the the biggest difference is that the existence of these powers is well accepted and recognized. Mm-hmm. So this feels more paparazzi like yeah. than like daily bugle like. Oh, but, for sure. But, it's but definitely there's, pop- there's a middle ground there. Yeah. There there is kind of the the overlap between the two because it is a rare ability on top of celebrity. Yeah. I totally totally agree with you because it is definitely paparazzi like and it's also it's going to be a thing that like is also used against him and so you you'd made mention of this earlier right like the building as a city feels like an organism of trell right and these photos even that are being taken feel like they're a mechanism of defending the city as though it's an organism as though they're white blood cells because this is going to go to the news and then it's going to popularize the problem that stairs has to deal with at the end of the chapter and so Bilming has this weird 
to me, almost like bodily response to these invaders of sending T-cells out in all these various ways. It's so, so fun. Love it. Yeah. Did I say T-cell? I meant white blood cells. Are those also T-cells? Uh, what are T-cells? I want to say it's a specific... T-pose cell? Definitely just, T-pose. Just it's a type, cell. T-cells are a type of white blood cell, so that makes sense. But yeah. Cool. Fuck. I love I love the scene of wax falling through the air though. Like that's again great written for TV, feels scripted, feels wonderful, very excited. So 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 cool. All right. We jump to chapter 26 and we go back to Marisy and she's really reeling from the results of what's gone on during this double sting. She ceded most of the authority to the constables of Bilming, but the results are really what displeases her more than losing control in this moment. It's really the loss of these two constables, the dozen that are seriously injured, and the system playing out in favor of the set to begin with, seeming that they'll be free by the end of all of this, considering what happened. is and She's just being outmaneuvered brilliantly. Like, like you said, and kind of began the analogy that I'm going to run with forever, is that this organism of Bilming is, is actively operating against her, and she can feel that. But on top of that, the worst part of that is the loss that she's experiencing. Yeah, she, she really hasn't had... The opportunity, if you want to call it that, to learn how to deal with loss and and failure mm-hmm. until this point as a constable. She hasn't had to wrestle with that almost at all. So this hits her really, really hard, understandably. Yeah. And I, I think that it's a good thing that it does for a bunch of reasons, of course. Like, it logically makes sense. And I think it's good. I mean, I think part of the reason that I really enjoyed this book so much is that a lot of a lot happens in it, you know, which is which is a great thing. But we get really grounded character moments. And this is just another example of like having this character feel grounded in this moment and pulled back down with a failure. I, I think that we almost had a sense of in the previous books failing leading to successes all the time. Like the win was actually a ha ha gotcha sometimes or the loss was actually a ha ha gotcha in moments. And so I, I just find this very satisfactory. I, I, I like it. Right. But. Wax gives a stirring speech to lift that mood a bit about being Harmony's sword once again and tries to point to the bigger picture of what they have to lose and gain from what was done today at this point. So she he tries to repair that that energy, that space around her as best as he can, saying that he's here to stay, basically, to solve this one. Well, more than that, that everybody experiences failure. Like, I, I think pointedly oh, it, it was you're, you're, a direct conversation to Marisy about not getting down on your luck about a single perceptively failed raid. Mm -hmm. Like it's going to happen. You're all right. Yeah. This was a very good speech. Good job. Waxo. (laughs) You call him Waxo? (laughs) I did call him Waxo. Waxo. All right. All right. Fine. But there's a couple of other things in the notes. Feels better. All right. All right. There's a couple of things that they're trying to piece together specifically. How do they think so many spikes, you know, beyond just the abductions? You know, how how are they getting all of these things? How have they not found anyone practically since they the abduction started in the first book? There's a lot here that poses questions about the capabilities of the set. Did you have any immediate thoughts on, on what that looks like? I, I feel like we're made to believe that these strings of abductions going back to alloy of law mm-hmm. are strictly the source of the spikes and and they've been very pointed about who they've kidnapped 
and it's not about breeding allomancers like Wax had posited, but rather strictly stealing their allomantic or ferrochemical abilities. Because um, beginning of Alloy of Law, Marisi is the one that gets abducted and saved, right? Mm-hmm. And Steris is left alone. She is an Alamancer. It made more sense to steal Steris, to to kidnap Steris, but they didn't. They mm-hmm. went for Marisi. And Wax saves her, and that sets off this whole sort of romantic arc in that first book. Steris was captured. Fuck. All right, never mind. Yeah. But it does set up the romantic arc that you're talking about. <laughs> Just from the other side, but... I really thought... Marisi was... They attempted to capture Marisi. Instead. Right. Okay. They were they were trying to take both of them. He managed to get Marisi out right away. Steris was successfully taken. Okay. So I think we'll see... I'm just going to take that as we're going to see some, some ability from Steris. Okay. <laughs> I think that's my takeaway from that. Yeah, I mean, maybe I, she I can burn her element. they're only trying to steal Alamancers. Okay. In that moment. Yeah. But I, I guess that's that's the point that comes to mind in this section is the spikes are forged and then imbued with power through the people that they abduct. Okay. PJ. Yeah. Vendel also points to something that we talked a little bit about last week. Beyond the blindness that Harmony is experiencing from autonomy's interference, there's something else wrong with him. Like there's a dark shadow in in the background behind him. I think this blindness is strictly a symptom and it is one of maybe several symptoms of what's actually going on with him. And it's far from the entirety. I don't know. Far from the entirety of the disease or far from the entirety of just a little bit more. Oh, the blindness is far from the entirety of what's going on with harmony. Okay. All right. Like there there's a lot more to it than that, but the bl- like this blindness that he's talking about and referring to is the most directly obvious symptom. Yeah. Okay. So it is there's there's way more underneath the surface there. It's just the apparent. Yeah. And this goddess shroud of shadow that's being talked about is also a part of it. Okay. Part All of right. the same thing. Okay, that makes sense. I'm I'm in. The chapter ends with the building mayor arriving for a conversation that we're going to talk about in the next chapter. But like, oh man, this this could have worked as a cutoff point if we were reading this in much smaller chunks for some reason. Yeah, what a fucking dirtbag! Right, like what a dickhead of a person. Man is a maniacal asshole. Maniacal. Yeah, I've, I have a hard time. But we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about Gavin Drone in chapter twenty seven as he has reintroduced this piece of shit a hole from Bands of Morning, who not only insulted Steris in the last book, but really was incredibly rude and mean to our boy. I mean, yeah, like just the definition of badness. And he's really no better here. He definitely knows exactly what he is doing, and not only is he an asshole in the moment, but also super duper fucking racist regarding the dirty maskers of maskers of the south and the language of our kind repeated over and over and over again the way he treats Adele later oh god he is very acutely aware of what he's doing 
mm-hmm. and shifting gears a little bit, knows the strength of the position that he has over the crew and wax mm-hmm. specifically. Like he knows how racist he's being. He knows how discriminatory he's being. Doesn't care. Mm-hmm. But also knows how strong of a political position that he's in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that that's kind of the the problematic part of the danger here is that it's like, again, bringing it back to your, your Trell thing, right? If Do you think Entrone's in with Trell as well? Or do you think that he's maybe in, in, in the little way where he is unaware? Or do you think he's big involved? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Given he's the man. Um, no, I th- I think he's aware. Okay, so he's in on it. He's he's a yeah. member of the set. Yeah, uh, maybe not a member, but you understand what I mean. Like he's, but, you know, but in yeah. on it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so given that you think that he's in on it, obviously we can say that there there was this was the intended sting. Like this was intended to happen to catch the set in sequence. It seems on the part of Captain Blantich, although we don't know Blantich's involvement. I just mean that like, it seems as though they really didn't have an intent for this to become as violent as it was until the double sting happened. And then it seemed as though they were actually going to be captured by real detectives. So in the same way, Entrone kind of steps up here to, react i think as that white cell defending the the organism yeah fuck because he's coming from that position of power he knows what he's doing he's leveraging it now yeah he's he's really fighting for it yeah and he doesn't even respond or listen to vendel either who absolutely has some vestige of authority here given how connected the conjurer are to harmony and the whole religion he's like well it's not my religion and it's just fucking ridiculous and wow he just throws that in the well too before leaving the room just a fucking dick and blantich of course apologizes and seems genuinely upset about how this all went down not expecting a lot of that and not really talking badly about anything or anyone just sort of shocked expect this expected this to be more positive interaction given how it all went but yeah i i don't know if i'm shocked like i, I don't know if i can I, be right like I, I should be I think I don't think you um, should be. I, I'm saying she was. Okay. I'm, I think I'm with you. I don't think that I was shocked. It, the moment that Entrone's name hit the page, I was like, "Here we go." Yeah, <laughs> but she's shocked because she probably knows a different side of it. Flip side of that, what a great villain setup! <laughs> like right. a lower stakes sub villain minion mm-hmm. kind of guy. Man, yeah, seems I, uh, well done. Yeah, I think it's very well done comparatively. Ugh. Blantage mm-hmm. and Entrone. Entrone is so bad. I love it, though, to your point. Like a, a minor antagonist like this is just wonderful to add to the story. But we then move to the the internal monologue of contemplating the threat of the bomb and Wax deciding that it's time to try the other earring, the trellium earring that he's forged. And he hears Telson speaking like he can key into her radio frequency. And woof. This is like a kind of scary moment, especially when she comes to and realizes that he's there and can listen. And it's not as though she literally turns and focuses, but it feels like she turns and focuses, kind of like the eye of Sauron or something communicating directly to you through, you know, radio, basically. What do you make of the interaction between the two and Telson's claims of saving the world? It's like omniscience, but only if you're paying attention. Fair point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, directed omniscience sure yeah 
Yeah, exactly. I was really concerned that wax wasn't going to be able to get the earring out. Like I, I, I really thought he was going to go through a similar rationalizing conversation that like spook had with ruin after mm-hmm. the, after the tip of the sword broke off in his chest. Okay. Like, I, I really thought something like that was going to happen all the time. And didn't. I mean, yeah, maybe we're unaware of like what, what that could mean, but I, I see what you're saying with the sort of residual voice, especially considering a lot of the parallels that we've been talking about between, you know, end of eras. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after this attention turning and getting the information, as much information and the experience out of this so that he knows what he's doing, he pulls out the earring and is thinking about how to share the information he has overheard from his sister with his friends, as well as the next steps that they should be taking. But this is all instantly interrupted as they stare out the window and see that death has arrived. I was really concerned he wasn't going to have the ability to remove that earring. Mm -hmm. But as far as the sort of imagine just like talking about your Easter or your Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were having a, a pretty okay time. Bingham spiked the punch with acid. So all of us were tripping balls and then death knocked on the window and just kind of had a conversation with all of us. Eight out of 10. Great Thanksgiving. (laughs) I don't know. Seems odd. Okay. You, You think that like death showing up is odd is the odd part. All of it together. Like I, it's great. It's a great showing and it's cool to see marsh again especially kind of as himself mm-hmm. but takes yeah a minute i mean to make that work definitely since the first book really and we'll we'll talk about that more in chapter 28 that ends chapter 27 of course did you have anything that you wanted to say about the broadsheet was there anything that caught your attention i was gonna look at that again because i don't remember it off the top of yeah. my head i'm sure there's a lot here there's some like fun things which are like oh, this yeah. was fun yeah yeah i totally uh, i totally saw that that's a good one. The band visiting the Banza Morning Temple site is interesting. Like that being turned into a tourist trap yeah. makes total <laughs> fucking sense. I mean, what else, what isn't a tourist trap at this point? Based mm. on what Vin and Wax have done collectively. True. Fair point. One of the other things that I really love about this is the letter to the editor that feels like it's so very clearly written by Tensoon. I want to read it here just because I think it's very funny. Once again, I must object to your continued allowance of the ads for Sunni Industries, manufactured of the Sunni Pup, who have also ignored my numerous letters regarding the historically egregious depictions of the Ascendant Warrior's companion as a terrorist wolfhound, when scholars have repeatedly demonstrated that modern dog breeds were not yet established in the days of Ash, and that the Ascendant Warrior's guardian was not a wolfhound, but in actuality a wolf dog. <laughs> Grudgingly yours, Professor Olin Tober. Well, Man, I should say I do assume that it's Tensoon. It seems like it is. It feels weird. Why would Tensoon do that? Maybe. Well, I I think it's more the irritation, right? But like, it's just being irritated by the whole thing. But also, there is the other side of that where it might not be Tensoon. It's just when I read it, I was like, like this is pretty funny if it's Tensoon writing letters to the editor to tell them to stop making Sunni pubs. That's pretty fucking great. But it could also be the 
It could also be a professor, a scientist, a historian getting the facts wrong and writing in because it, yeah. we do know based on Vin's description and everything else that it was a wolfhound. So this did feel like it was coming off of multiple pans on the stove. Like it, it That's felt fair. Like an, an older audience. That makes sense. Yeah, that was that was kind of my perspective on it. I think the rest of it is pretty, pretty just what it is for the most part. There's some fun stuff about like looking for um, some talismans that are around. There is like help wanted signs that are kind of fun at the on the tour. They do reenactments of the showdown, which is which is great. <clears throat> and then there's also a, a noseball band band requested like a letter to the editor or plea. So cool. All right. With that, let's go into chapter 28. I love how death is described here. And even in the first line of the paragraph, it's just wonderful. You know, the idea wax had never seen death himself, though Marisy had met the creature once. And that is just so like tangible and chewy. And I love it as we get to re-meet old iron eyes for the first time. And he's not looking good. One of the constables pulls a gun and he crunches the barrel with his alamancy with the ease that few could even grasp as wax describes it and tries to work out how to make that happen in his head. If it were even possible, of course, he doesn't think it is for anyone that isn't a mistborn, but still even in Trone tries to be an asshole and Marsh gets gets back at him with the how would you like to die speech that he gives him which is just so good again it's lovely to see that clown finally put in his place (laughs) yeah man crushing a gun entirely with alamancy Mm -hmm. is not something that i knew i wanted until I read this (laughs) and I'm like yeah of course that's exactly what I want in every fucking scene going forward yeah I you know it's one of the again Mistborn has done such a good job delineating itself from other metal based stuff metal based magic the biggest of course being Magneto in popular culture and this is something Magneto does all the time in every depiction he picks up the guns he disassembles them he crunches the barrels he bends them backwards so they shoot themselves all kinds of random shit. And it was so satisfying to see it in this moment because it was something that I it had fallen out of my brain as a possibility in the storytelling. And to see it, I was like, oh, yeah, right. That's so good. Feels good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also learned that without ATM, Marsh is finally slowly dying. The end of his life is rapidly approaching, but his goal and mission are to try to make this as easy as possible. And he's been trying to track down the people who are working on splitting Harmonium and while he hasn't had a whole lot of success, he does have a lead to share. The man, Tobal Copper. The group now has a lead that they can chase. All I want for Christmas is the ability to keep adventuring. I don't know. I don't know why that joke came to my mind. <laughs> for for Marsh? Is that yep. is that what you're suggesting? Yep. <laughs> the ability to keep adventuring and not fucking die. Save the boy. Yeah. What I appreciate about this section is that we have a larger overarching goal potentially and that's to save our boy to save marsh to save death by finding atm and i don't know if that's the intention here i don't think it is but that's now a motivation of mine going forward so we'll see yeah i Totally 
<sighs> I think it's so cool, especially as we we consider the title of this the lost metal, right? Like the lost the lost metals are impacting the world in profound ways. You know, if you if you think about it one way, magic is slowly fading from bloodlines and becoming less and less potent as Alamancy begins to disappear. And then on top of that, losing Atium means that we lose this immortal survivor and a lot of other components therein. Literally a fiction like a piece of mythology is, has the potential to die right now. Ugh. I love it. Mm-hmm. But he also says that Trell is trying to pull Scadriel off the galactic stage before we even get on it, and that the group has found a way to circumvent the spike limit, but that they also haven't yet learned the secret to compounding via hemolurgy, and that for now they're limited, but they are definitely a genuine threat, and that they may be working those things out as we speak. I think the aforementioned circumvention of the spike limit is directly and exclusively related to the fact that Harmony is blinded. And I think they know that. I think they know they can spike themselves basically as many times as they want without being taken control of, which is terrifying. That's really, really hard to grapple with. Mm-hmm. Let's see. I think uh, they could test this theory, though, through Vendel. Like, if Vendel is able to spike himself an additional time and not get called upon or whatever happens, things might You mean be by out. Harmony? Like, the control of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if Harmony is able to control Vendel still, if he has more than three mm-hmm. spikes. Okay, got it. Got it. Yep. Yeah. As a, as a sort of control test. Sure, sure. I I definitely think that there's something to the blindness for sure. I I think that that I agree with you there. But a big part of me, because this has been going on prior, right, to some degree, is that there have been people that have been off the grid for Harmony with Paalm and Bleeder. Has it happened before the blindness, though? That's what I'm trying to say. Like, I think Bleeder is the example of that with Trellium specifically. And that could also be she's a Chondra. Mm. She breaks some rules. You know, there there could be a couple of different things going on here. But I bet that you're right at the very least that the blindness is not in Sazed's favor to being able to do anything anyway. I would be curious to run your test just to know if Sazed can even see people with spikes in them right now. I'm going right. with no regardless, I think, no matter well, what he, he can't. Maybe not see, but he's able to connect with them. Yeah, that's fair. Oh, he does, obviously, with wax. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not control, but maybe he can connect. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Cool. Hmm. It's a complicated question. There's a lot to it. But then we also learn an important little fact here that Moonlight's symbol is that of a marewill flower and is the symbol of Kelsier. Wax brings up the coin from the last book and seen through his eyes and asks if the man is still alive. Marsh clarifies that he's less alive than Marsh is, but perhaps more than a ghost is. And this is so fun, complicated, and fascinating. It's pretty neat. What would you make of it? It is very fun, complicated, and fascinating. I'm assuming Kelsier is still in the same position as he was in at the end of Secret History. Hmm. And I appreciate that. Because we have no other reason to believe otherwise. Well, we kind of do, though. Because at the end of Bands of Mourning, he has a spike in his eye and is walking around among right, but we've, theory. You and I have hypothetically and, and posited, I don't know if you've done it on the show, but we posited that that spook. That is a different 
co-theory that I am in on for the record. Let the record show. I don't think we did this on the show, but okay. maybe we did in the bands or on the Secret History episode. But I'm not saying that it's spook. I am saying that it's Kelsier in Spook's body, like tied That's, to his yeah, body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. Exactly. So I think it is Kelsier, but that was my but theory. But I think it's Spook's least, body. Yeah. And right. I, I don't think that there is any physiological change to Kelsier between the last yeah. thing that we saw in Secret History and now. Mm. He just yeah, Wait, maybe, maybe well, the- revealed an ability to possess people. But I, mm. I don't think his, his state change is... I don't think there's been a state or form change in Kelsier. So it's his, I understand what you're saying. For me, I just want to clarify on my side of this theory is that I think that the pin that is in the eye of maybe the spook body, we're, we're guessing, is one, oh man, I have a completely different theory because I know more information, but is one that is linking like the cognitive shadow with the physical body, Right. So it's it's basically tying them together. So, so I think that think think is a is change. Dead? Oh, I think Spook is dead. Yeah, I don't think he's. I don't think he's still around. <sighs> Especially. I mean, well, here's here's another here's another type. Here's another part of it at the very least. Marsh says in this chapter that there's only three left. So I assume Spook did die. Well, because it's just Harmony, Kelsier, and he alive. So he considers Harmony to be alive. Okay. Y- yeah. Was Spook a part of the crew? I think Officially. so. I think so. I think Marsh did, would did say. Did Marsh yeah. see him that way? I think so. He was. He was the. He was a, a Tenai. He was important. He was a spy a bunch of times. Yeah, but that was that was he, after Marsh went, left. No, no, no. He went with Marsh on the boat out originally when he was doing the thing, and then came back when he went to go become eventually become an Inquisitor, but. Okay. I think he would definitely think he's a part of the crew. Sounds good. I, I can understand the idea. I, I understand where you're spinning, but I don't. I just want I it think to be true, man. <laughs> like, I, I know. It to me too. A live spook 300 years later with like co-inhabited body of Kelsier. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that that would be a, a very fun, very fun solution to this whole thing. I agree with you. But yeah. Nonetheless, we're still left to deal with kind of the question here of like, Kelsier is actually alive. And not only that, now our main characters know about that information, which is it's in and of itself interesting because that means that there's a Mistborn out there, right? In theory. In theory, that'd be tough. <laughs> yeah, it'd be really tough. Yeah. What do you what do you what do you assemble from all of this, especially the group with the Marewell flower and the. Oh, man. Like there there is a survivorist clan i guess mm-hmm. like there, there's a third faction in this war that is not necessarily on board with harmony based on the conversations of like them not wanting harmony to know what they're doing like i i don't this is really difficult yeah i mean i get it it's it's all good i just want to you know i gotta gotta check it's one of those where it's like Here's the fun mystery box. What do you make of the fun mystery box? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which thread will you pull on? So, all of them. Okay, cool. Just pull the thread. All of them. Ah, uh, so Vendel stays behind and leaves the group behind to tend to Marsh. And Wayne asks a fun question about ghosts and the fact that they now have some definitive proof of an afterlife, along with all of the other crazy shit that is happening around them, which is kind of nightmarish and interesting and <laughs> fascinating. And whoa. <laughs> 
<laughs> Nightmarish, interesting, fascinating, and whoa. Feels pretty right. It encompasses all of the emotions, it's I think. all of the emotions. I think it's all of them. Yeah. I mean, it's not sad. <laughs> no. No, that's a pretty big one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. I mean... I, I love that Wayne's the one who brings it up too. He's like, you guys aren't freaking out about the fact that, hey, we just met like a mythological figure and the rest of them. Like Marisy's like, no, I already did that. And Wax is like, I talk with friggin' Harmony like every other day now. We're buddies. Not We're really. friends. Every other year. But yeah. This is this is Wayne's first brush with God in some way or the, the otherworldly. It's an appropriate reaction, I think. With that, yeah. we go into chapter 29. Blantich catches the trio on their way out and says that it would be easier to contain the governor if they accepted a building constable while in the city. Easier to contain the mayor, sorry, gov- not governor, while they're in the city. When it turns out to be moonlight, Marisi agrees and dances around them having met before as she shows up in the room with the group. But if she could be useful, even if it's to explore her own ends, they decide to kind of keep her around as Marisi kind of makes the case for including Kim in these moments. This feels like a continuation of the shift of temperament and behavior and morals of Marisi as she becomes more entrenched into the constable lifestyle and persona. Um, Mm -hmm. Like we we've talked about her becoming less rigid and a little bit more, more understanding of lying by omission and sort of just kind of that aspect of the life that seems to be kind of required. But this feels like a total outright lie that feels odd for her character. It it makes sense in the moment and it makes sense with the justification that we have, but it does not feel in line with what we know of Marisi. And I I think that's an evolution. I don't think that's a flaw. I don't think that's a, a change in her character. Or, or an undue change, rather. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just a further progression in this evolution of Marisi that we've been seeing lately. Yeah, I, I think that that's a great way to put it. Is it that it is kind of like a, a further exploration is a great way. She has this opportunity for more information and she's deciding whether or not it's right to kind of go down that path to begin with. And she isn't willing to rule it out, but she isn't willing to fully accept it yet. And so she's kind of hanging on to it. And as such is stretching her morals in a way. um, Because of the possibility, because of the, it's almost like, again, being tempted by the same power that she was before in Bands of Morning, right? It's this, but information being power, not some physical power in, in a similar way. And so she's kind of flirting with it in the same regard. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, very cool. So the pair head to the records room office for more information on Mr. Cooper, or Copper, excuse me, not Cooper. And Marisi is able to talk privately with Moonlight. She pitches her agency and the benefits as well as the responsibilities to her who has been wanting more substance in life, it seems, in her work life. You know, she's she's content with being a cost constable, but Marisi is not good with being content with anything. So it makes sense that naturally she's looking for the next step up, the next progression. And that's great. I think it's it makes sense. And so, of course, she's keeping around to explore like we were saying before. And there's there's a lot here to talk about in terms of the, the relation and sort of the hints that Moonlight gives here. What do you think? What do you make of the offer and this promise of more out there? 
Do you think Marisi will take it? Maybe more importantly? I mean, with, with the symbol of the Marewell flower kind of explained, the, the interlocking diamonds, mm-hmm. I'm rooting for her to accept and follow through with the offer, assuming that it's genuine and assuming that it's actually Kelsier and his sort of following. I don't know. It's hard to justify my belief, but I I want to truly believe that this is Kelsier and a well-curated, selected, chosen group of people. That is so interesting to me. I I really... Do you think I, I just want to make sure that we explore this? Do you think it's not Kelsier? I mean, it seems it so, is the symbol of Kelsier. Do you think that there's something of like other nefariousness? I just need like a little bit more. Like there is. Give, give me another a, quarter turn. The quarter turn. All right. The, yeah. There is a comment that pushes against that idea for me, and that's the fact sure. that they don't that that they're hesitant based on the closeness to harmony. Okay. And, like that that doesn't jive necessarily with Kelsier. Like Kelsier and and, and Sazed didn't necessarily have the same goals or intentions at any point, but like I, I wouldn't have thought of Kelsier as feeling like he needed to hide his intentions from Harmony or from Sazed. So like that's a mystery yet. And I don't know what to make of it and is making me hedge my bets a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, I think, I think that this is such an interesting question that I have a hard time not trying to color your perspective. And I think that it's such an open one right now that I don't want to comment too much further, but I, I really appreciate it. I think that you gave good insight and explained your, your position. Well, all right, cool. All right. So obviously there's also the other side of this, which is them finding the uh, results from Mr. Copper and the records from him, as well as the cruise theories about kind of what's what's going on in the background. I love, by the way, there's a wonderful minor character in the records room lady. I think that she is hilarious. I think she's wonderful. She's got some very funny moments of dialogue that happens between the group of them that I really enjoy. But Tobel Copper's notes and talking about the world becoming turtles. And I can't help but also remind everyone turtles all the way down. Like if you have, if you've never heard the phrase, it exists, it's real. I've had to explain this to many friends as I've said it many times, but I I do find it very funny that it's brought up kind of in this context. And I kind of, it's kind of funny that they're exploring a record very deeply. And that's kind of the idea of like turtles all the way down is like the further you follow, it's just the same thing. It's so, interesting. It's not a parallel, but that's, it's just fun there's that. But there's also the fact that the tortoise is on the Bilming crest, the city mm-hmm. crest as a tortoise. So like that can be influential, but like you're, you're going to eat your words when everybody becomes turtles. Like it's going to happen. <laughs> BJ, I'm not saying that it sounds like a different version of you in some multiverse is Tobal Copper, but I am not not saying <laughs> that. Yeah. I concede. My name is Tobal. <laughs> my last name is Copper. And I have been run out as a state-sanctioned chemist. 
I fucking hate chemistry. Guys, don't, yeah, no, don't I was go about into to chemistry. Say, don't do you, it. <laughs> you tried to make that lie go on for as long as you possibly could, <laughs> which is great. Did you have any, any other notes to say here about this seemingly mad scientist before we move over to the apartment? Like, he seems mostly, based on what we know and based on what we're supposing, he seems mostly completely sane. Yes. So I'm just... I'm just hoping that this turtle comment has some weird grain of truth to it. I think, interestingly enough, PJ, I never picked up on the the turtle being the crest and the turtle like aligning here. Yeah, personally, I I didn't I didn't draw the connection. You should, but in my first viewing, I did not pay attention to it. Whatsoever. Well, because it's not a turtle; it's a tortoise. But like they look right. the same. Right. <laughs> Or look very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. I will. I can't wait to swallow my words whole. It's going to be super mm-hmm. exciting. All right. With that, chapter 30, we go to the the scene that I was just mentioning. We, we're moving to the apartment. And there's a lot that happens here. I really actually, I love this chapter. But there's also not a ton to talk about outside of the conversation that happens between Moonlight and Wayne that I definitely want to get to that I don't have in the notes. But Wayne is puzzled at why Moonlight is pretending to be so, like, earnestly bumbling as she proceeds through. And he, like, notices that she's kind of being fake, like she's a bad actress. It's enough to fool wax, of course, as we know. But Wayne's just so in key and in touch with the way that people react. He's he's curious. Of course, they arrive at Copper's apartment building and there's a doorman. And Wayne thinks to himself as well that he should get a doorman for his buildings. That way, you know, when he gets especially drunk, someone can carry him up to the well, <laughs> his room. He should buy a building like this and then then staff and then a, a doorman. doorman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And he is also reminiscing about the story his mother told him from the prologue and whether they are now at the canyon or not. I, I think that that's kind of a fun detail. He seems to be almost plotting his life story against the stories that his mom told him. And I think this is a great, like tangible thing inside of the story that I, I really enjoy. The apartment is neat and tidy though, as they make their way in and they find several chump traps of which they managed to disarm over the course of this. You know, it's kind of, they're, they're easy traps that if you didn't have an elemental capability, you could have meaning that it seems as though that like he, it, it seems as though he dealt with the set, but at the same time, he didn't want to necessarily. It adds some kind of question marks there. I just get this classic detective feel right in the middle of the story again, mm-hmm. and I love it. Like, this is just absolutely noir. I got seven vibes. It's not a murder scene or anything like that, but yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I love it, too. Branderson here does a very, very good job of laying out this information to be found Mm-hmm. without it feeling cheap or explained and then exposed, which is often yeah, a problem, yeah, yeah, not a exactly. problem, but that's like, like a thing, right? They're able to deduce what happens or what happened after being given these clues without it feeling like force fed to the audience. And like the, there's blood on the desk, is. right? The books have been replaced. I don't know if replaced. there's like a framework to follow or anything like that. Like I am very limited in my experience into novels like this, but this feels like a very narrow bridge to, to cross. Like it feels like it could have been overdone and like over, like just too heavy handed. And it feels like it also could have been underdone and felt like they were pulling answers out of nothing like 
it's a balancing act as far as I can tell to make this pay off the way that it does. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that's why this scene feels so good. And I also think that's that's why mysteries, to me, from my experience, are the hardest part of the story to write is when you incorporate these these sort of mysteries. And I, you know, Rob Hart is predominantly a crime and, and thriller and mystery writer. Part of crime and thriller, of course, is that nature of that mystery. And every story at its core has a mystery. But making something a literal crime scene or a place that you're inspecting you have to make it feel as though you're living in the space and that everyone has the information and then to make your characters logically work through things. And you also want the reader to feel like they figure it out, right? Like you want the reader to be able to figure something out if the characters are going to, which is that balancing act, right? Right. So specifically, you like you described, you don't want them pulling it out of thin air. But you want to make sure that the pieces of the puzzle are there at the same time. It makes it makes mysteries incredibly delicate, but very rewarding when done well. Like it's a it's a rush of dopamine when you're watching yeah. a mystery movie or reading a mystery book and you're like, fuck, yeah, I got it. And you yeah. just you feel really good about that when it clicks. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, I watched Glass Onion yesterday and it was awesome. Yeah, I, I need recommend. to I need to watch that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely very good. I'm sure Caitlin would like it. Very funny, very poignant, and very, very, very clever. Of course, right. it's Ryan Johnson. You know, it's favorite, favorite movie of all time, written by that man. Okay, anyway, I, I really appreciate the hunt for clues as they go around, like we've been saying. There, there's the blood, there's the books that have been replaced, there's the little sliver of bone that they find, there's the bullet hole. There's, there are all of these different components. And it looks as though he was maybe trying to make a bomb or maybe he was being paid to figure out how to make a bomb. There are a lot of different questions here. But I find what's more important is that Wayne explains to Moonlight how Maris is the brain and Wax is the guts of the operation. And this is like a, a wonderful moment where friends recognizing friends for their talents and capabilities and and really kind of painting them as the two primary pieces i i just really really appreciate this conversation that happens between the two of them did you have any any notes on that part of the conversation before proceeding into the sort of role or the the rest of copper wayne of course notes himself as comedic relief and that's bullshit but it is also <laughs> true it's i mean especially in the previous books true. yeah yeah i i don't know i don't i don't have any like insightful additional information it's it's just such a well done part of the story like i i was drooling over this like this this was so succinctly and cleanly done this whole yeah this whole apartment scene i loved it i thought it was excellent just really well executed all around I, I, it's, it's like, it's not my favorite chapter of the week, but it feels like the best written chapter of the week. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I greatly, greatly appreciate it. But Marisi finds a perfect correlation to the broadsheet's address and the scrap of numbers that they had uncovered previously. And you would think that this is the perfect place for me to stop as they uncover these kind of final clues for a week. But of course not. I can't. I can't do that. There's one more. One more chapter that we have to do. But you you're know. right. This would have been a perfect breakpoint. I'm guessing part of it is just a number of weeks that we have to <laughs> fit this into. But at the same time, like I, I like where we end in general, and I'm very glad we continued through this and get get I, the the Steris perspective too. 
I would add, you know, this this would be a great stopping point. It does. It, this is where the storyline stops. You know, like we don't see an advanced progression on the storyline. So we do get a cliffhanger here. And at the same time, I know how many Starris chapters there are in this book. I know how many we get to see. So I think it's fun to end on her perspective, given that she's playing a completely different ball game. And now, PJ, you don't just have one ball in the air, but you have two <laughs> Yeah. as far as what's going to happen. So thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, I do. I really, I really, really, really enjoy this chapter and the way that it ends. And, you know, any other any other time, any other week, I think it would go the other way. Honestly, in an ordering, like if we could just shift the book for the purposes of the show, I would put chapter 31 before chapter 30 just for the so purposes too. of the delivery of the show. But yeah, it doesn't make a difference for the book itself. It's satisfactory as is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. But with that, let's talk about chapter 31. It's the final chapter. It's not very long. We we get to get in and out of this perspective pretty quick. But we move to Steris, and it's wonderful to hop into her perspective again of her taking her breaths to settle herself down before she begins her first session as an acting senator of Ellendell. There's a lot of insecurity here and self-doubt, and I can't help but feel like she's more than fully capable. But so goes imposter syndrome, you know, like this is such a it's such a real reaction to being put in the in the hot seat, as it were. Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily like I'm sure a little bit of an imposter syndrome comes out here, but yeah. I don't think that's necessarily the full weight of it. Like this is new, like even if she's yeah. capable and comfortable with the source material and like feels like an expert in the field she's still jumping into a very new scenario and doesn't have the comforting backup presence of her husband to to calm her nerves so like i i think a little bit of imposter syndrome but also just a little bit of inexperience Mm-hmm. produces this headspace Cocktail. that she's in. Yeah, I totally understand that. I, I definitely, definitely get that. I just, I was trying to put words to it and saying that it's like imposter syndrome-esque. You know, it's not necessarily fully, but yeah, mm-hmm. it, it is It is all things, I think, is the it's what you're, what you're kind of munching at. Right. Of course, the first thing that is on the top of everyone's mind is the botch sting in Bilming, and she's put on the spot to give an explanation of what Wax did by the vice governor at Awathwin. She presses for a select council to be formed as a small commission with Reddy, and the idea is adopted, but she's cut out of the deal. What a dog shit way to go about that. <laughs> like, how fucking terrible is that? Like, god damn it, did this make me angry? It is so fucking frustrating. Knowing that Atawathwin's the one, like, making all of these decisions. All of them. All of them. She is entirely yeah. in control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, all all is a lot. I would say she's making like 95%, right? Like there's this small sliver that like, which we'll get to, of course, and that's the decision to take Dahl's boat, right? Is that that's, that's one of the small decisions that the governor is actually making to like go on that boat. But Look at her first, though, before answering. I think that she ends up being frustrated with his decision to do so. I think he does look at her, but she's like, no, and he decides to do it anyway. So, like, there's there's some dissent there, but not, you know, how much is it? Like I said, 5 and 95 is kind of my my quota yeah. for what I see. But yeah. And then that gets to the larger issue of, like, what's going on in this this government chamber in general and how who 
who and how much control is being put where. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about like Wilming being or not Wilming, Bilming being this sort of cell with white blood cells and everything else protecting the, the body. Bilming or oh my God, Ellendell by comparison feels like it's on a completely different planet of trying to keep itself alive. So mm-hmm. it's it's actively fighting itself. Yeah. Yeah. So all that said, I did just mention Dahl in the ship. Of course, he offers that up. Did you have any thoughts on that transaction and how it processed? I mean, Steris internally makes a really good point about this being a publicly accepted bribe and yeah. knowing, like, positing, I guess, and we know that they're going to be able to like snake themselves out of this. They're going to be able to sort of slither out of that accusation mm-hmm. somehow. Politics suck. Especially this kind of politicking. Like, yeah. this is this is brutal. It's well written. It's just brutal. Yeah. Ugh. And it is a public bribe. And on top of that, the three people that he's pulling in are corrupt knowingly. I believe, if I remember correctly, aren't they the same three that were accused of in in the very beginning of the the fraud investigation that Wax throws out, I think I couldn't remember. I think they might have been. I think it is, but I'm not 100 percent on that. I would have to double check, but it would certainly make sense and be thematically whole to to do that. So, you know, mm-hmm. one way or another, I'm down with it. I know one of them is a set, which is fascinating as well. That they're still kind of at this power game, despite being literally married into the primary family bloodline now. Right. Yeah, it's it's pretty fucking wild. Fucking sets, man. Still still throwing their weight around. All right. So we leave Steris with her set on finding a way to get into the room where it happens. The room where it happens. The room. You knew I was going to do that, but it was so I, good. It's it's accurate, though, too. <laughs> it is. She just needs to figure out a way to fly, which how <laughs> might she figure out a way to do that? I don't know, maybe she's actually secretly a steel pusher. As well? She's a coin shot. Power couple, coin shot power couple. Coin shot power couple. Strong, strong energy, strong vibes. <laughs> I'll just wait for her husband to like bring her there. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. That could that could totally work. PJ, I have this desperate need to pay off these predictions. All right, let's do it. Do you do you feel the need to do it? Okay. Yeah. I need to refresh a cocktail, though, because I'm out. So okay. we'll clap out of this to come. I, I was like, does it make sense to do it now? I know we were originally doing it at the top, and then we moved it back, and we haven't done them in a while. So it was like, God, I think we have to go through this list. All right. So we're going to wrap wrap up this episode, of course, really quickly here. But we've been begging. We've been, like, delaying this for a while now. They're piling up on the bottom of the document. We got to roll through the predictions. I, I looked at the document length and I'm like, 11 pages? No fucking way. Like, we haven't had a document that long in a bit. And it's because the predictions are taking up like three pages at this point. So, all right. I actually didn't do any pre-sorting. So this is going to be a bitch right, to edit. Just highlight the ones you want me to, to look at. I don't, I don't fucking know yet. <laughs> That's the problem. I, I didn't review them in advance. Except for this one, which I knew because of that prediction. Okay. Let's... This is so interesting. All right. We'll 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 start there. We're going to do the first 3 to start. Okay. So, here's we're going to start at the top. This is I believe from 
Shadows of Self, maybe Bands of Mourning. I think it's from Shadows of Self. In Zobel, Wayne and Marisi discuss the captive as well as the piercings that he has on his chest before they manage to work their way into the party under a different guise of which set up sets up a lot of fun for later. But I want to talk about the little bits of information about the captured man. Given that the spike is likely hemolurgic, what do you think is up with that? My answer to that was hemolurgy is running amok. Knowing how subtle the touch of influence via hemolurgy can be, I wonder if this has been building for a long time with the floodgates just now opening. Blame Hoyd. He he maybe has similar powers to Sazid or Ruin slash Preservation. So here's the thing. This is so interesting because you're like, I think you're like 80% correct. But then you drop like the blame Hoyd in there. (laughs) And it's not at all. Like you're not. The first half of the statement is pretty much entirely correct for reasons that we find out from like it's it's effectively the set of like worked their way out. They've worked out a lot of the stuff that Marsh did via experimentation. So I think we both take drinks because I think that the first part is so well articulated that I got it. But the bottom the bottom rationale is bullshit. Yeah, it's wrong. (laughs) So cheers. All right. Yeah, because we know he's not a shard so far, because we know. All right. So next up, Vendel has Breeze's hands and Wax shook them earlier. This is funny. Anyway, getting back to it, Vendel <laughs> names a bunch of old relics, the Bands of Mourning, Lady Mistborn's Knives, the Lance of the Fountains, as well as saying there are four people who held the power of Ascension. Rashik, the Survivor, the Ascendant Warrior, and Harmony. And the reason that this one is specifically highlighted is because of how this was never meant to be a prediction, but your answer was so fucking off the wall that I made it one. Because, go ahead. Tied to Hoyd and the Puddle Jumpers or Kelsier's circumstances of becoming a Mistborn, something fucky about the Wells, multiple, etc. That that was my best attempt to try to summarize the answer that you gave in that moment. I don't remember what I said. So I what, do remember. Trying, I remember this question, and I remember we talked about it for thinking about sixty it. minutes. We talked about it for a fucking hour. I get that, but yeah. looking at this question, I remember thinking about it like an hour later after we had ended the episode. I'm like, fuck. He was trying to get me to talk about the fact that the survivor was in order and like, I don't know what yeah. I was thinking. Like, I, I yep. know I had a rationale. I know that there was something I was thinking about. Well, um, yeah. So the rationale that you were going down in that moment, and I know that everyone who's listening to this is like, Crossan's going to bring it up and PJ's going to have trauma about it. But the thing that you had do- dove so hard down in that rabbit hole was the circumstance in which Kelsier became a Mistborn in the pits in proximity to Atium. That was right. the rationale, yep, yep, which yep, is yep, the yep. incorrect rationale of what, why the power, as we learned in Secret History. I've been, I should have paid this off then, but, you know, we, we yeah, had other things to do. Yeah. I'll drink for it. Cheers, cheers to you. That's definitely yours. <laughs> no, no question on my end. For the little bit wrong that I am. Yeah, yeah. And again, I didn't expect to make that a prediction, but that conversation went on for so long and you made so many grandiose statements that I had to try to (laughs) summarize it to make it a thing, which is why that ends up looking the way that it does or sounding the way that it does for people who heard that. Hopefully that jogs your memory. If it doesn't, just go back and listen to that episode of Bands of Morning. It's probably the second. Just know that if I get into an hour-long conversation with you about anything, I don't remember it. Oh, I like, dude, I, you I, don't I, remember a five-minute conversation. No, but when we like, record the show. 
if I'm you remember if I'm having a an hour long conversation about anything, I am too drunk to continue <laughs> the podcast. Like, no, that is true. what's going it's on, true. and I you will not remember what we're talking about. You weren't too drunk. That was the other part of it. Is you were so good with it, like you were so on it. I I believe that you wouldn't remember it, of course, because of the nature of what we do you were not too drunk you were just so locked in you were so dialed okay. in i was trying angry. to work out kelsier yeah, exactly you you it was like a it was like a rage rage blinders like you were just in and <laughs> okay. i couldn't pull you out <laughs> i tried <laughs> many times that i think we cut out roughly half of that if i remember correctly i think in the end but it mm. was there was a lot <laughs> there was yeah. a lot there all right cool all right i love you guys on their way to the <laughs> I got another one. <laughs> On their way to the door, they run into a beggar. And well, it's better that I just read the quote. Oh, my Lord. I know it. I do. I own the palace, technically. Now, regarding those coins for old Hoyd, my good Lord, Wax hands him some coins. But curiously, the beggar Hoyd throws his change precisely at Wax before he cackles and runs away. There is no comment around the fact that he's met, interacted with, and employed Hoyd in the past. New face? Question mark? It's a new... It's a unique name, so it seems that it should have stood out. I don't know why that was made such a big deal, but the coin itself is important. It's not one of the misprints, right? Question mark. Not one of the metals we know. Not not one of the metals we know. Scoping out wax, trying to learn things about the mechanics of the world. Again, we talked for a long time about this one, so yeah. I often have to append your thoughts to no, these the, for prediction's sake, and that's an example of that, trying to yeah. summarize the ideas. Um, I'm still mad about this. I know. We it's talked about it like worse last week. This book. <laughs> yeah. I don't get it. It begs a question. It is not one of the misprints. Several. Nope. And it is not one of the medals that we knew about at that point. Correct. Yeah. Well, that's not true we actually did know about the metal but we well, didn't know about the composition of metals because it's multiple it's a medallion it's, so they didn't it's recognize it metal right no it's not made of that metal it's made of the identity metal i think which is nicrosil if i remember correctly for ferrochemy basically it's one of the medallions that you can access no matter what but it's a copper mind as well and so it stores oh, okay. the memories of calcier in those moments and so you watch gotcha. them but it's okay. it's an identity list copper mind i believe so Gotcha. But that's me. I'm going to take the drink for that. Not only for the Hoyd thing, but mostly for the getting it right on the coin side of things and the other side. Like, that's good. But the Hoyd thing is, we talked about it last week. Very kind of humorous at this point, especially for how much he interacts with Hoyd. It feels like if there's if there's an oversight that would be corrected in some way or or like made more apparent in an adaptation, it would be the distinct difference that hoyt it would be portrayed as but i will say part of the reason that i remember doing this is that language is very odd compared to the hoyt that wax knows that's it true. is very different so that's very true yeah must hmm. be disguised in some way so cheers taking the drink we move into the next chapter starting off in the room staris sends wax off for drinks and he gets wine for staris and a and for himself he tips the man after a philosophical observation and the bartender gives him the coin back thinking it a memento it matches the pictures that Relor had taken before, and it's very clearly the medal that Hoyt had gave him earlier. What do you think about the coin? What connection do you think it has? Or why give it to him? Why would Hoyt interfere? I think it's a secret handshake slash subtle badge. 
I think Hoyt is Trell. <laughs> and much in the same way Harmony needs wax, Hoyt wants to use him too, starting with small helpful things to gain trust. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I remember turning this one into a prediction after the fact. Because I was like, after after we got done with the episode, I had like marked in my notes to do it and put it in the in the bottom because it was not at all a prediction. <laughs> but that was just so outlandish that I just had to make it a thing. That was so good. It's very, yeah. very good. Very good. So this one is also fun and interesting because I think I've explained the answer off screen, but I don't know. And in Devil's Cut, but I don't know that I fully have on screen. So Wax then approaches the next conversation with Lady Demu and goes to the dance floor where he's intercepted by a mysterious woman who gives us some statistics on the world at large and answers a couple of questions you asked last week about the overall numbers here. And she also makes our very first non-Ars Arcanum reference to the name of the religion or of the region of Scadriel. What implications do you think their conversation has? Do you have any thoughts on who she is or why she's doing what she's doing? I think a shapeshifter of some sort, maybe a chondra. Maybe something different. Maybe Hoyt himself. We know that the gods of this world are not all-knowing, so spending some time in, on a foreign world doing whatever possible to understand the mechanics of a new magic system isn't outside the realm of possibilities. So you're definitely drinking, for the record. Yep. But I did want to say the Hoyt bit is really funny. Shapeshifter of some sorts, very interesting. I did make the reference earlier that you, you pretty much have trusted everyone for a while. I was technically lying, I guess. Hoyd, you you had a problem with Hoyd. I had a problem with Hoyd. I still have a you problem, had a problem with Hoyd. With Hoyd. <laughs> I have, yeah. But my problem with Hoyd now is not about trusting the character. It's about trusting whether or not Branderson understands what he's doing with Hoyd and Wax and their <laughs> relationship. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. It's very funny. But yeah, you have to drink for that one. So Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And as the answer to this question, since it isn't clearly provided immediately it feels good to pay this one off but it isn't clearly provided as the final prediction this is chris of whom we met in secret history it's the same woman who writes the ars arcanums it's the same voice it's the same character she is going between worlds studying the magic systems of the worlds and the worlds themselves and knows knows them in and out so Mm -hmm. yeah yes not hoyt (laughs) no not hoyt i also tried to give you like a hint nudge with the non-ars arcanum bit to like try to maybe poke you in the direction of being like is it the person who writes the ars arcanum <laughs> no i thought um, i i thought you were just trying to preemptively halt any like questioning of the question that i would have mm, like oh no we heard about this in the ars arcanum interesting so I, I, I thought that's where you were going with that no i went the other direction that's interesting i spun you the wrong way uh-oh <laughs> Okay, that's fun. All right. Well, cool. That's it for the predictions. Thank you so much for bearing with us as we caught up for several books of predictions. (laughs) I I think pretty much everything post-Alloy of Law was in there. But next week, we are going to be reading chapters 32 through 43. 32 through 43. So well into part three. There's four chapters left, I think, in part two, and then we go into part three. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always to tim and andrew for helping us keep our shows lights on you can check out our show notes where you can find our schedule our patreon our previous episodes our websites our social media accounts all in one convenient location 
I will say, if you want to make Crossland very, very happy, make him be very active on Twitter right now. He loves Twitter. He is very happy about the current state of Twitter, and he wants you to interact with him on Twitter. That was a great shit post, PJ. I really appreciated <laughs> that deeply. But if you do interact with me on Twitter, I will love it because I, if if nothing else, I need a reason to go back to the platform, and your interaction would do that for me. So appreciate all that you do and all that everyone is as we try to transition into figuring out what the hell. How the hell we communicate a lot of these things. If you aren't already, though, this is a great reminder to follow us on all of the other platforms that we are currently on, which includes Reddit and Instagram, as well as Twitter. We may be on one of the other social media sites in the near future. We'll let you know via this bit, of course, that we do every episode as well, that we're contractually obligated to do by the contracts that I wrote for us. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. Oh, by the way. In case you didn't know, you can find us at Words of Whiskey Pod on those platforms. If you can't find us on those platforms, send us an email, wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. Tell us where you want us to be. I mean, why the hell not? You, you can send us yeah. any kind of thing. You can join and talk with us much, much more directly on much less of a time delay by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. We also have our t shirts on T Public, but we've got if, a lot of things you want as we us mentioned to join at the top one of, the of those alt right only like free speech social media accounts like let us know like we'd love to <laughs> for sure we are definitely <laughs> going to be on truth social without question because that is a platform that will continue to exist for longer than the mm-hmm. next 60 days yep. mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah it'll probably survive longer than 60 days all right that was a little bit of a understatement but if you're listening to this in 2024 i'm, I'm gonna make i'm gonna make the bet that truth social doesn't exist all right <laughs> <laughs> beyond that leave us a review i'm I'm feeling really really shit posty today it was a good it was a good bit i like the bit beyond that if you if if you you should leave us a review please leave us a review that'd be great you should do that if you haven't done that understand that i will go to your family and i will harvest their organs and i will put them in jars and then i will display them for everyone to see in my museum jar of organs museum organ jar Museum of Organ Jars. Jesus Christ, the predictions hurt me hard. Yo, you don't know what's in my closet anymore. I'm not in the closet anymore. What's in the closet? (laughs) Okay. Well, (laughs) you should be worried. Be be scared. I'm scared. Be scared. Be very afraid. This is Christmas. Everybody, for your support. (laughs) It really, really, truly does mean a lot to us. It means the world to us. And you are what make you you collectively are what make this whole thing continue so thank you you and viewers like you (laughs) thank you you and all of pbs's network (laughs) not actually they we don't get a cut of the pbs money it would be nice pbs call me coming back could you keep picking up viewers like you (laughs) viewers like you happy new year we'll see you next year folks we're very excited for all the (laughs) shit that we have going on in the new year if in case you forgot it's at the top of the episode for like a bit we talked for a bit we're very excited for the Greenbone saga to wrap up this book of course and then to go into red rising again and then to dive into the first law as well as all of the other fun books that we planned for the short board did you sort a ship post did you have one more ship yeah, post? i mean i'm just gonna comment on what a fucking bubbling nightmare of a, this of is an yes outro. this has been <laughs> <laughs> people are gonna look at the episode length and be like okay the predictions and the bumbling episode that took Wow, that was a lot of time.
All right. <laughs> Cheers, folks. We'll see you later. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.